Welcome to the Thirst is Real podcast. Uh, today, guys, we have brought you the best content that I think we can bring, especially for the Archer. Now, you guys that are into uh, firearms, please don't tune out. Um, there's just something about being a more versatile hunter than just you know, hunting with ri- just a rifle or a pistol or a shotgun or whatever it is that you do. But I really feel like we have brought you guys one of the best uh, Bowtex, the just an all-around good deer hunter and a not just a good deer hunter but just a good hunter in general so uh it's just my pleasure to have mr gene hobbs with us here today how you doing gene doing well thank you very much thanks brother we're happy to have you man guys gene uh he's pretty well known for especially if you're an obsession bow fan gene is very well known for tuning the bows and you know tricking them out and doing a bunch of different stuff he does bow fishing charters he's an IT guy. He's kind, of, he's kind of a jack of all trades. So definitely somebody we wanted to have. So, uh, Gene, man, thank you again for being here. And dude, I, I, I definitely, uh, we want to get into it with you. So, uh, I think, uh, since you guys know, I'm probably not, uh, I'm still kind of a new archery guy. So I'm kind of let Kelby kind of, uh, ask a few of our first questions, but, uh, Gene, well, first I know what I can do. Gene, tell me how you got into deer hunting, how, how you got into hunting in general. I don't think it was just deer hunting, right? Or is that how it started for you? No, I mean, I remember being a child and sitting in my backyard with a slingshot for like an hour waiting on a bird to come up. Oh, yes. And uh, my family's always hunted, and it just kind of, you know, took off from there. I took, um, I finally went deer hunting for the first time at age 11. Okay. And, you know, and it just, it was, it, I, I it was took over. it and ran with it. Yeah. Over and I remember then. my first deer, this this is going to shock a lot of uh, folks. My first deer, 11 years old, I was using a 16-gauge single-alt buckshot. And I was high up in a pine tree, and deer comes out too far away to shoot. But I shot at it. I didn't know better. I was 11. And the deer took off running. Well, my dad comes driving up in the Jeep just a few moments later because he was all excited. He knew it was me that shot. And uh, he said, where's he at? Where's he at? Did you get him? And the deer didn't fall. I just saw it run. So I told my dad, I said, it hit the ground and got up and hit the ground and ran again. Because I knew once I pointed out where I shot him at, he was going to say, nah, that's too far. That shotgun's not. <laughs> so anyway, I said, uh, he hit the ground right there. My dad went and looked, and that's where he was standing. We took off running. And um, we looked around for about 10 minutes. Couldn't find any blood, nothing at all. It was, it was getting dark. And finally, we walked up on the deer. It was probably a 50-pound doe. Not one pellet penetrated her skin. There was like five pellet marks right on her shoulder. And what had happened when we field dressed her, the concussion of the pellets hitting her in the shoulder caused blood clots all through her lungs. Oh my! Because that's all. Nothing penetrated her skin, but her lungs and, and you know her shoulder all was just, just full com- of blood. Just clots. the compression from the shotgun. Yeah, that right there took a deer. But you know, fifty pound deer. If it had been a two hundred pound deer, nothing would have happened. See, our Thirst Nation, my brothers and sisters, the gun, the, the gun hunters, see exactly what I promise you, a, good, a great archer guy, but you just got a great gun story right there. This is <laughs> yeah. great. So. And, and, you know, as far as when did I finally say, let me put the gun down, which was probably about and, 20 and years ago. And pick the bow back, pick yeah. the bow up, huh? Well, and I picked the bow up once I was able to draw a bow back around okay. age 16. Now, keep in mind, I'm left-handed. I shoot a bow right-handed. Fortunately... People that were teaching me how to shoot a bow then didn't know any better. They, you know, they just, here's how you hold a bow. They didn't ask if I was left or right-handed, but that's actually a blessing in disguise for me through the years because how hard is it to get left-handed 
product. Right, so like, exactly. Oh, my gosh. There's usually a waiting you're, list. You're talking to a guy that used to, uh, that's all I did it, for a B was, and to be honest, like every time I saw a left-handed order, I'm like, please don't be short draw. Oh, gosh, please don't be like it. Please right. don't let it be like a yeah. yellow orange can. <laughs> sure enough. Yeah, so, I'm just, so that pan, that worked out real good for me. So I shoot guns today if, you know, when I, I my AR-15 type stuff, when I'm right. actually, I shoot those left-handed, but I shoot a bow right-handed. Okay. Um, so I started bow hunting when I think I was around 16, 17, um, probably 20 years ago. You know, by then I was up to the big gun, 300 Ultra Mag, oh, yeah. Leopold scopes, and all that. And I, I've killed plenty and plenty of deer by that time. But um, I said, I'm going to buy me a 300 Ultra Mag. I, I want to do some long distance shooting. Now, for those of you that don't live in Georgia, that live out west, your definition of long distance shooting is different yeah. from ours. Yeah, we don't have to take too much windage. Yeah. Our so, uh, so I uh, ranged a deer. A deer popped up out there in a clear cut at 230 yards. And I said, oh, man, let me see if I can do this. So I, oh, yeah. I looked at her. I touched, it was a doe, touched the trigger, and the tower stand shook to the point where she just disappeared. I didn't see which <laughs> yeah. way she ran, right. anything like that. And I thought, eh, I'm looking at it, but I said, I guess I missed. Oh, well, that was fine. Well, about five minutes later, boom, there, I like, oh, there she is right there, like five feet from where she was. And I said, I'm going to try one more time. Pull the scope up, took my time, touched the trigger, same thing. The tower stand shook. And again, this was a 300 Ultra Mag. And, um, and I didn't see anything happen. So I looked at my watch. It's 11.30, about time to get down. I said, well, you know, let me do my due diligence. Respect the animals. Go out and just, you know, at least check. Yeah. Make sure you don't find any sign of blood. So I'm walking that, towards that 230-yard area through thick clear cut. And I finally get about 20 yards away. I turn around. I range my stand. I said, okay, I should have about 10, 15 yards to go. Well, I walk up to that spot. Well, there's a doe laying down right here to my right and a doe laying down to my left. Well, the moral of the story is both deer, I touched trigger, they dropped. And I stood there and I looked at them two does. And I said, that was just too easy. For me, no, I mean, nothing against God. I still pick a gun up once in a blue moon. But for me, I'm like, that was too easy. I'm going full bow hunting from here. I'm going to be, you know, or at least 99% because right. once in a while I pick up gun. So and ever since then, I'm a full-time bow hunter. Man, so yeah, I just got tired of giving the deer cardiac arrest. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just wanted that. Some people need a little more of a challenge. And right. the, the archery, whew, I can start a debate here, but the challenge was there. But then I, I made my challenge even more challenging. By I, shoot, I can shoot long distance pretty well. Okay. I mean, I've taken an antelope in Wyoming at 103 yards with a bow, on camera. Oh my gosh! Um, my guide couldn't believe it. He was the funny thing was I had a pin that went up to seventy yards, like three pins went up seventy. My final pin was a hundred yards, and this wow. this group of antelope comes out, and I said, "Range it for me." And he's like, "Oh, those are too far." I said, "Just, just range it for me." So the guide, he's ranging. He said, "That was eighty-five yards." I said, "Okay." I said, "Keep keep calling out the numbers." And I was getting ready. I was drawing my bow back. He said, "Well, it's eighty-eight. It's ninety-two. I said, tell me right when it gets 100 yards. Yeah. And it, he was like, 99, oh, wait, now it's 102, and the antelope stopped. And he looked at me and said, too far. And about that time, I touched the trigger on the bow, nailed it. Thing runs off, you know, there's my first antelope ever. That's awesome. My guy looked at me, and he said, man, he said, I would never bleed. I would see it. He said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Which, more people do it today. That was probably 15 years ago. But yeah, so I'm, I really enjoy the long distance shooting. If you're out west, you better know how to shoot long distance because wow. you're not going to have them Georgia 20 yard shots so often. Yeah, that's that's for me. I mean, I, I'm a new bow hunter. I still call myself a new bow hunter, but 
I, I, I'm not very confident yet past my 35. I think, you know, once my 35-yard, my 30-yard pin, if I can't really get it with 30 yards, I, I'm just not – I just don't think I'm there yet. And, and that's good. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear from all new archers and from seasoned archers. Mm-hmm. If you're not comfortable past 10 yards, don't shoot. If you're not comfortable past 30 yards, don't shoot. I shoot my comfort zone. Now, I'll be honest, I prefer a 20-yard shot. But if there's a antelope, mule deer, or something along those lines standing broadside with minimal wind at 90 yards, I'm 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 putting an arrow in him. I'm gonna do my best to. Nice. Now I practice daily, and when I say daily, out of 365 days a year, I may miss four weeks total of where I didn't shoot my bow on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I practice daily at 100 yards. Now, why do I do that? No, it's not so I hope to get a 100 yard shot. But when I practice at 100. All those 20, 30, 40 yard shots are just a breeze. Mm. And saying that, I'll miss a 20 yard shot with the best of them. I just want to, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying I never miss because, yeah, I'll miss with the best of them. But practicing at longer distance makes the shorter distances easier, almost too easy. You pull back and you're like, oh, I got this. And then you start messing up because you made it look too easy. Right. Oh. Shooting at long distance helps you fine tune the skill. So, you know, I've heard just from. Other archers, you know, say, "Hey, start at ten and then work your way back." But you're kind of saying it's a little bit, a little bit different. You think, you know, when you're starting at those longer distances, I'm going to have much easier time. I mean, well, I, no, no, I'm not saying start at the long distances. Okay. If you're a new archer, start at ten, start at five, start okay. at whatever, whatever you can, whatever you can start hitting a target and building up your confidence. Okay. But I'm saying once you get out there and you're used to shooting 20, 30, 40 yards. Step it off a little bit. Shoot 60 and 70, and then when you're hunting at 20, 30, and 40, you're going to say, wow, you know, God, pins on it, pins on steel, squeeze trigger. Because archery is easy. Now, when I say that, here's, let me define that. All you got to do in archery is do the same thing over and over again. The problem is we're human beings, and we can't do that. You take a device such as the bow shooting machine called a hooter shooter, I can literally put an arrow in the exact same arrow hole without fudging that arrow hole any at all at like 15 yards. Now, that being said, I can take my bow without the hooter shooter and I can stick an arrow kind of sort of in the arrow hole, but it fudges off a little bit. So to tell you how sensitive archery is, well, let me get back to my point. My point is the hooter shooter can do that all day long, but we're humans. We don't do the same thing every shot. The goal with archery is to draw back Hit your wall. I, I like to put pressure on the wall because when I just sit in the light valley, my pin will start fudging. Pressure on the wall. Do your back tension. Let the uh, trigger surprise you when it goes off and make your shot. So with a, to show you how, how sensitive this is, if you draw back and you think I'm on the wall because people tell me they don't creep, creeping will cause your groups to open up. Now, what, what exactly is creeping? Okay. For us creeping is where you think that you're holding in the same spot. And you shoot, and you're really not holding safe. You actually went forward a little bit because you're relaxing, you're letting them, your muscles relax. And so you're thinking you're at full draw, and you actually eased forward maybe a sixteenth of an really? inch. Really? And you don't realize that. So when, uh, when I was running my archery, archery shop, uh, the seasoned professionals would come in and, and say, yeah, I've been shooting 20 years and all this. I don't creep. I, I, said, I said, well, you do creep. He said, no, no, I don't creep. And I said, well, I'll, I'll prove it to you. And what I do is have the, uh, the the person draw their bow back, and I'll say, now tell me when you're ready to shoot. And they'll say, ready. And I'll make a mark 
on a particular area on the arrow right by the rest. And I'll say either shoot the arrow or let it down. And I'll say, okay, do it again. Well, I'll do this three or four times. And when they're done, I show them the marks on the arrow, and there might be a half-inch difference. That's creeping. Creeping will open your groups up because you're not doing the same thing every time. So to prove that on the hooter shooter, when you draw a hooter shooter's bow shooting machine, the bow is attached to the machine. You wind the, the stream back to a certain point, you know, you, to whatever, wherever the wall's at. You know where that's at because you see your limb stops hit. And you make a mark on the hooter shooter, a little pencil mark. And you, you have a, a um, syringe type of shooting device because that way there's no human error in this machine whatsoever. So you squeeze your syringe, the arrow goes off. Okay, and so you pull your arrow from that hole and you go back. Now the hooter shooter is stable on the floor. I, I put sandbags on mine. So it does not move when you shoot. And as long as I wind that bow back to the exact pencil mark, that arrow will go in the exact arrow hole. You couldn't go up and place it in the arrow hole. Now, what happens when I move that, when I wind it back intentionally a 30 second more or a 30 second less than that mark, the arrow will still hit the arrow hole, but not perfect. So picture that compounded out to 70 yards, 80 yards. That's a group opening up. So back to the moral of the story. To shoot a bow, you just have to do the same thing over and over and over again. So I shoot a glove, a, 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 a nylon kind of polyester. Let's see, is it nylon or polyester? It's the real slick kind of satin sheet type kind of glove. And um, the reason I do that, I get a lot of, you know, put stuff on social media and people go, what's up with the Michael Jackson glove? <laughs> well, well, I tell That would them, be sweet to have like a Michael Jackson <laughs> glove to go hunting with. So I tell everybody there's a method to my madness. Okay. I sweat a lot. So if I'm shooting a bow a lot and my hands are sweaty, when I grab that riser, the grip of it, I might grab it and draw the bow back, and there might be a time where I'm at full draw and I'm thinking, man, this doesn't even feel like my bow. It's because I'm gripping it in a different way, in a different area, even though I put my hand where it needs to go, but it feels different. So by wearing this nylon glove, every time I draw it back, it's so slick that forces that riser to seat more consistently in the same spot and that helps me to not torque the bow and to draw back the same way every time and it helps my groups close up well you know to me and you being such a, an accomplished archer and and bow tech and and just archery is your life you know for you to be like hey even with my grip i have issues if i don't if i don't have and so that's the way you've got to kind of combat that i guess was with the Michael yeah, use glove. that. Trust your wrestling. You know, okay. a lot of people go, "Well, I have wrestling. I just grab." Well, if you're grabbing the bow and you've got a rubber grip on it, you're torquing the piss out of that bow. That you're you're not you're going to shoot better if you don't do that. I, so, I don't even have. Well, honestly, I have to blame my co-host here for not having a, a sling. <laughs> I I said, "Hey, man, do you think I ought to get a, uh, a bow a bow and a sling?" He was like. I don't ever plan on dropping my bow. <laughs> <laughs> but if you plan on closing your groups, get right. a sling. Okay, and there that, you go. That's what, I'm, that's what I need to do. That then. sling serves a critical purpose in shooting better. Because, and, and what I see a lot of people do, that they ask me to coach them, the moment they, they're using their sling, the moment that bow goes off, they grab that bow. Uh -huh. And I say, okay, you're not trusting your sling. Right. Let, you know, shoot that bow, shoot, shoot your arrow, Wait a half a second to one second before you grab your riser because you're grabbing it so fast the arrow may not even be off the riser yet and you've done torque the bow making it, obviously it's going to open your groups more because it's you know you're torquing every time you shoot doing that so by doing that I notice people that aren't used to trusting their sling 
they they fear it a little bit because they feel like they're going to drop their bow. Well, that is the purpose of the wrestling. You're not going to drop your bow. Let the bow do what it wants to do at the shot, then grab it or whatever you want to do one second later. So when you first started bow hunting, did you have a mentor, somebody to help you? I did. Um, unfortunately, my first mentors didn't know anything about archery. So anybody out there listening, when you, if you really want to get into archery and really want to learn to shoot good, make sure whoever is walking you through the, the process, make sure that they really know what they're doing. Because if not, you can start off in, uh, with bad habits that are going to be very difficult to break once you get used to those bad habits. So uh, my grandfather, he um, he put the bow in my hand, and I remember one year I was so excited, he bought me and my brother a Ben Pearson Pro Staff 1000 bow. This was right after compound bows came out, and we shot fingers, we didn't shoot release, and I was just tickled to death, and if I hit a milk jug at 15 yards, man, we were, we were on top of the world. <laughs> you know, that was it. But as I grew older and, and started taking it serious, I've got a, one of my best brothers, my best buddies, um, Ted Cotton, he really started showing me the stuff I needed to see um, because I, I, I got involved in 3D tournaments around age 18 or 19, and I saw that he was a guy that knew what he was doing. He was um, He's won tons of championships, and we uh, we kind of became... I actually dated his sister before I knew him. <laughs> so, and, so he that, still, and he still was going to be your yeah. mentor. That's great. <laughs> so, uh, but he, he taught me a lot on, on getting started. Um, he actually got me into boat fishing. Nice. But um, today, we're still best buds. We've got some stories that will blow your mind for hunting out, hunting together throughout our lives. But yeah, he, he, he got me started on the right track. And, you know, we competed in archery for years together, along with some of our other friends, uh, T-Bone, Travis Turner, he was a real good friend. We all competed together. We hung out a lot, and, you know, we learned from each other. But that, that's pretty much where I got the true skills from, was, was learning from Ted what to do. And, and again, I, at that point, a few years after that, I didn't trust archery shops to tune my bows. I didn't trust them to um, work on my bows, so I learned how to uh, work them on bows and start tuning, you know, bows and start taking tuning seriously. You know, tuning, you know, that's, I guess, probably one of my things. I give the new archer here. A lot of the reason I think I struggle, at least, and partly is probably the bad habits that you mentioned. But mm -hmm. the other thing, too, you know, I always hear guys talk about, all right, I have to get my bow timed and tuned for the season. Um, and I understand paper tuning to a point, but making those adjustments without a bow press. I mean, can you explain a little bit about what a guy like me who's just getting started, what should I be doing? What should I be adjusting? How? What is exactly getting timed in tune yourself before even getting an, uh, a bow tech involved? Then actually, if you do need to take it to a shop, how, what is the, how does all that work exactly? Yeah, so, uh, so if you're wanting to start out by yourself, I um, mean, if you don't have a bow press, the most you're going to be able to do is move your rest left and right up and down or move your knocking point um we used to focus on tiller a lot tiller is not important as, as today as it used to be because today you pretty much lock your bow down it shoots better that way as opposed to having half a wind out but um so paper testing there's there's a lot of debates on paper testing but the overall goal of a paper test is to be able to walk back shoot your arrow at maybe 10 feet and have a perfectly clear what we call a bullet hole right. but you see your your hole with your veins if you have a knock left knock right knock high knock low there's things you know you're moving your rest or your knocking point you want to you want to clear that up 
So that's pretty easy to do, but there's a lot of times on today's fat, you got to consider today's bows are much faster than they used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, which means everything we do is more sensitive and more critical and is going to show up more at the target. So, in other words, less forgiving because of the speed. So that's, that's the goal, which is one of the reasons I love shooting Obsession bows. I found these bows to be so forgiving because they have a, such a smooth draw cycle. I mean, a buttery smooth. I mean, you're, you're pulling 70 and you swear you're pulling 60. Mm -hmm. So with that, between that draw cycle, um, a good solid wall, and the more tuning I do, and my mind says I'm making me a more forgiving bow. So on, on the debate with the paper test, a lot of people say, got a perfect bullet hole, my bow is tuned as good as it can be. And, you know, well, that's not always the case. A lot of people shoot that paper hole or shoot their, their arrow through the paper at maybe 10 feet, and they get a pretty good hole, and they think they're done. You might back up to 20 feet, and that arrow might be fishtailing or porpoising. You might back up further. Now, now the goal of the veins is to straighten that arrow out. So um, the more you back up, it should help straighten that air out. But if you ever if you ever shoot a clear paper hole, then you go out and you shoot at 30 yards, and you see your arrow porpoising or, or fishtailing, then you know good and well that, okay, that paper hole at 10 feet didn't do me any good. So, But I will start with that. I'll start with a clear paper hole test. I'll get that arrow going that rate uh, or, or meeting my expectations there. And then I'll go to a bare shaft, and I'll do that at 10, 15 feet, which makes it even more sensitive. It's more critical, meaning that you better grip the bow at the same place every time. You better be on that wall the same amount of pressure on that wall every time and things like that because the bare shaft is going to tell on you. So even though I'll get, I'll get a clear paper hole, I'll get a good bare shaft, 10, 15 feet, okay. Then I might do what's called a modified French tuning. And when I do that, I might back up to 15 yards. And by the time I get that looking good, meaning I'm um, hitting uh, perfect left and right, up and down and all that, okay, well, all at once my paper hole might be off a little bit. Well, I don't care. That paper hole is not what, what defines a perfectly tuned bow. So once I've tuned my bow to the point of where I'm shooting a bare shaft at 20, 30 yards and I got a clear hole, I'm happy. I'm very happy with that, and, and then the, you know, then the French tuning will help me with any slight left and right because you might be a little left at 20 yards. Well, picture that at 50 yards. It's gonna it's gonna expand and compound. So, um, paper holds a good starting place. If you don't have a bow press, at least you can move your left your your rest left right up down or your knock and try to clear that up. But as you dig deeper into it, you'll you'll want to get a press because you may have timing issues. A, a lot of people don't realize there's not just timing a bow. They're synchronizing the cams and timing the cams. So the cams need to start off in the correct position, and then at full draw, they need to end up at the correct position. That's why you have timing and synchronization. So I'll, I'll try to get the cams. Um, actually, timing is the beginning. Synchronized is at full draw. So I'll get that straightened out, but you can't do that without a press. So um, you need to know... Okay, if I'm going to roll this cam over um, a, a, a touch more than the top cam or bottom cam or vice versa, you need to know which cable to turn because a lot of people don't realize, hey, if I put one turn in this, what's that going to do to the bow overall? So you, you always want to take your outside control cable, not the one closest to the axle. That's the one where you make a twist. It's going to uh, affect the cam rollover. 
If you try to twist one in the center, nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You can see this test real easy. Just squeeze it with your hand. Squeeze that outside control cable. Um, we have hand, and if you squeeze it and that cam rolls over, then squeeze the one closest to the axle. You won't see that cam roll or do anything. That's how you know which one to turn. But you need to know what you're doing. You know, you need to know if you if you tighten it. When I say tight, if you add one or two twists to a control cable, what's that going to do to your ATA? What's that going to do to your brace height? So you don't want to get things too far out of sync. You want to keep them within companies or manufacturer specs. But I'm here to tell everybody: do not go by those manufacturer specs if they say ATA is 33 inches, because your bow may tune better at 32 and three quarters or 33 and an eighth. With obsession, those ATAs are not approximate exactly. numbers. My biggest fear, you know, being you know it's just so new to it, you know, if I did end up with the press, you know, and it did start, I'd be afraid. Like I'd, I don't know, I'd pop a limb or do something stupid or have a, you know. And I guess that that goes back to us talking about you know having a mentor, having somebody, or even a good relationship with a Bowtech, or you know, having knowing a guy like you who knows what to do, and that's. Would you say, I guess, you know, maybe been an archer for three years, four years. He's a pretty good shot. He can paper tune pretty well. He can move his rest. He can do a lot of those things. But he says, all right, I'm going to get a bow press. All right, I'm going to start putting twists and stuff in my cables. I'm going to start doing, I might even try to change strings or cables myself, that kind of stuff. When you get into that kind of stuff, are there, is that something, I mean, I feel like that would be dangerous territory for somebody who's not necessarily a novice, but not exactly, they've not been doing this a long time. Yeah, it, it could be because you've got to pay so much attention. You want to make sure whatever bow press you're using, that those limb tips are perfectly centered in the fingers, you know, because you don't want one to pop free or anything like that. I've had bows beat me up pretty bad, and I've been blessed. I haven't been hurt worse than I have, but I've been beat up by bows and bow presses before. Um, I had one guy bring in a bow before that uh, at full draw, the bow locked up. And for those that don't know what that means, that means you're at full draw, and then you shoot or you go to ease the string down. Well, the string is, has slop in it, but the bow is still at full draw. Mm -hmm. That is a ticking time bomb in your hand, and that uh, I fear that a lot. Um, fortunately, it's rare, but um, I have a good friend of mine bring one in one time, and um, he said, this thing, what he didn't do before he brought it in, he didn't pull it back to the wall. I said, well, draw the bow back to the wall. Let me look at it. Well, when he did, he let down, and it was locked up. And I'm like, oh, man. So um, I got the bow's riser, and I held it kind of in front of me. Again, that thing, I was like, man, this thing can explode if this goes off. And I took it over to my bow press, and I slowly and very, very carefully um, I've got a, a electric motor in my bow press, and I, I touched the button to um, so the fingers will grab the limb tips. And then I added extra pressure, and I felt better. I was like, "Good man, I've got you know that could have been a could, could have turned into a bad thing." Well, then I looked at the bow and I said, "You've got some bad timing, string stretch, something along those lines. We got to figure out what it is. You're probably gonna need a new set of strings." Well, about that time, the top cam. I reached up there with my thumb, with my hand, but my thumb happened to go inside one of the holes in the cam, and I was going to roll it over just to um, look, you know, look at things. And the moment my thumb touched that cam, that bow was not pressed hard enough, and that cam rolled over and sliced off, oh. sliced off the top of my thumb a good. Oh no! I'd say a good three eighths of an inch to a half inch. I mean, my uh, thumb literally just went backwards, and. The cam, you know, being metal cams, they have really yeah. kind of sharp edges. And uh, so about that time, man, I'm, I'm squirting blood everywhere. The guy is <laughs> freaking out. 
get in the truck, let's go to the hospital. And I'm 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 kind of frustrated that I allowed that to happen. I should have pressed right. that uh, bow press a little bit tighter. And I looked at my thumb and I said, "No, you drove two hours to get your bow tuned up. I'm gonna tune your bow up." No, you're not good. I was like, <laughs> "I said I'm okay." So I wrapped my thumb up real good, and um, sure enough, I just put a new set of strings on there and then timed everything. And hey, for all those who don't know, your thumb will grow back. <laughs> I thought I was gonna have a flat <laughs> really? thumb, but it literally grew back. Although there's no filling in the top of it, that's but awesome. It, yeah, it grew back pretty cool. So actually, so, it's like Wolverine. Or I something. actually had the same thing happen to me. I got cam tracks on my thumb. Mm. Um, one time I had a bow bro- blow up in the press, and uh, it broke the bone in my top yeah. of my hand here. I was gonna say I've I've seen a blow a couple of bows blow up and I was gonna say well the Botech shall remain nameless but he just called himself out. Archery is a dangerous thing. sport. It years is. <laughs> years and years ago, bow presses would actually you would just wrap a rope around the grip of the bow, right? And you had a winch that you wound down, and then you had. You had fingers on the end of the, or, of the bow press or just wheels, rollers, like a boat ro- trailer roller. Right. And you would lay your bow up there, it would sit on the wheels, and then you ha- hooked your rope or your cable around the grip, and you take that winch and wind it. Well, one day, now I'll, I'll never forget, this was a Hoyt Ram Hunter bow. And a buddy of mine was there, well, it's going to help him tune his bow. I'm winding the bow down, and the bow riser breaks right in the center. This is back mm. when you had sand cast risers. And when it broke, it all came down on top of my hand. And my hand was just wrapped up in cast for oh, no. a while. So so that happened. Um, um, that didn't happen during hunting season, did it? <laughs> uh, it was probably not far from. Oh, it. man, I would have been mad. Um, yeah. <laughs> but here just a year and a half or so ago, um, I've always had a fear of pulling a bow down on a scale. And the, my scale is attached to a beam or something above me. And I'll, I'll pull the bow down and look at you know the lead off weight, see what pound I'm pulling. Well... I, I I won't name the company, um, but there was a small scale I was using. It's the luggage type scales that we all you know see out there in the bow press world, or the bow scale world. And the bow press was supposed to hold. I mean, excuse me, I keep saying bow press. The bow scale was supposed to hold up to like 120 pounds. So you think 70 pounds, 60 pounds, no big deal. I even had an extra one of those scales one time. I said, let me see what it's going to take to break this thing. So I have a lot of free weights down in my shop. And I chained about 150 pounds of free weights together and set them on that bow scale. And I kept doing that till the bow scale finally just shattered. And I think I got up to almost 200 pounds. So I said, good, my mind feels good about this. I'm never going to worry about this bow scale you know, having an issue. Well, that this particular day, about a year and a half, two years ago, um, got a brand new bow, Kelly Obsession bow. You probably remember this. Yeah, I remember this happening. All I did, I, I mean, the bow just came in. You know, we're all excited. We got our new toy. I took the bow out of the box and I said, "Well, let me see what the weight is set at before I do anything." Brand spanking new. I put it on that scale. I pull it down. Well, that scale comes apart, and everything, the internals of that scale came came down on my right hand, laid me open. Um, I knew my, I knew I'd probably broke some bones. And I'd always feared that, man, can you imagine drawing a bow down and scale break? Well, it finally happened. And um, so, I mean, I'm sitting here just staring at it, just wondering if I'm going to ever be able to use that hand again. It was messed up that bad. And I actually cleaned the blood up, went upstairs into the bathroom, closed the door so the bathroom was pitch black, took a really bright flashlight and shined it on the bottom of my hand. And you can do that, and it looks like an x-ray. You really, can, you can kind of see. Depending see, wait, on, you guys learn all kind of stuff from our <laughs> podcast. Just don't just hunt them yet. <laughs> and, you know, depending on how much meat and muscle or thickness you have, and I could see three of my bones that weren't sticking up broke, but they were fractured and kind of apart a little bit. Oh, 
And, uh, and, uh, and the way I did, I compared my left hand that was fine, and you saw a world of difference between the two bone structures. But anyway, all that being said, I've been beat up by bows a good bit. And so, yeah, it, it can be dangerous. You need to be very careful, and uh, they're nothing to play with. They, right. They, That's what scares me so much about getting a press or, or draw board or anything like that. You know, just like... Well, something, something, even a seasoned guy like myself, you know, we, we get um, complacent. We, uh, we think, you know, we've done this a million times, no big deal. Well, not here a month or so ago, I was taking the axle out of a bow limb to um, do something different with the cams. Well, as I'm putting the axle back in with split limb bows, one of the fingers holding the limbs might have been forward just a touch. So that made that axle very difficult to go through the right. holes in the limbs. So I'm just talking to somebody who's stem I mean, I'm, I'm tapping that axle in there, and I'm, I finally think, I think I ought to be in there by now, because I'm just looking at a person kind of tapping axle. Well, I look down, and the axle had touched the opposite limb, and I was actually tapping the limb off of the bow press finger. I've done that before. Had I not looked, that would have been a bad, bad day. I mean, I, I mean, my heart just quit beating. And immediately, you know, I tapped that limb back over on the fingers, and... <laughs> I've knocked a limb out like that before. Uh, I can't imagine. That's probably mm, sound like a bomb going off. So when did you start bow fishing? Uh, okay, back same was the same guy I told you about to help me learn about how you know how to tune a bow and shoot a bow. Probably when I was around age eighteen or nineteen, right right around that era. Um, knowing my buddy Ted Cotton, I had another friend, and he said, "Hey, they, these guys go bow fishing. We ought to go with them sometime." Well, back in those days, how we bow fished was. We would go to a lake called West Point Lake down in middle Georgia. We would only go maybe two weeks out of the year around the springtime, and we would try to hit the carp spawn. And after about two or three weeks, okay, well, that was a fun year. We put our bows up, look forward to next year. Well, we would go down there, and we'd camp out, and you may go one weekend, and there's nothing. You might not see a fish. And what you're doing is we're walking around shallow water with our blue jeans on and a stringer tied to our belt loop. And then, so that day, you may you might see two fish. Well, the next day, oh my gosh, I mean, there's fish out there fanning, meaning their tail's sticking up, and they're just fanning back in, up out of the water just a little bit. Um, you're like, okay, it's going to be good tomorrow because they're fanning. They're really going to, so next day you get into it, fish are rolling. I mean, there's so many sometimes that you would shoot a fish, and I always had a spare arrow kind of just on my side and two or three carp would be coming come by and chasing a uh, female carp and i just take that arrow and jab them down in the ground wow so um, i mean you're just at this point there's what's the point of a bow (laughs) so y'all were bow fishing in daylight yeah so daylight only and i'll never forget so one night we were camping out down there and we had a good day of bow fishing and we're sitting around the campfire and i said hey i wonder what it would be like shining a light along the edge of the bank I wonder if that's legal. You know, I don't even know if you can do that. Right. So we went around with a light and we shot a couple of fish. Well, so we did that for years and we thought that was the end of bow fishing. Once the spawn is over, you don't bow fish anymore until the following year. Well, as the years went on, I, you know, I learned, hey, you can get out there at night, you can cruise around and uh, find fish. So um, that's when I decided to open my, my guide business. Um, I took my bass boat, I had a pretty nice bass boat. And my buddy Ted again, I said, hey, let's put a couple of halogen lights from Home Depot on here, you know, set them up on a couple of car batteries. Let's run down here to a lake called Bartlett's Ferry and see if we can see any fish. Well, we had such a good night just in a short time. I said, that's it. I'm going to buy me a boat and we're going to set it up to be a primary boat fishing boat and go from there. Well, I ended up buying a really, really awesome boat that a guy had designed in Arkansas to be nothing but a boat fishing boat. 
And the comp- a company called Excel made this boat. There's not another boat on the planet like it because they designed just that one boat. So the guy um, had the boat built, didn't have a fan on it. It just had an outboard motor, um, a spot for a trolling motor, and he had lights around it. But he had a pedestal because he says someday he was going to put a fan on it. So the guy ended up running into some money issues. And it, I mean, a year or two after he had the boat made, he sold it. I drove up to Arkansas one night. I'll never forget it. Was, it was sleet rain. I wanted to go out there, pick the boat up, get back home in time before all the big storms came in. So I drove all the way to Arkansas, picked the boat up, drove through an ice storm all the way back home, finally got home <laughs> safe and said, thank you, good Lord, for getting me here safely with this because it was a bad night. Right. And um, so the next day I woke up, I looked outside, I said, okay, I got me a nice boat fishing boat. And I said, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> now that everything's iced over. <laughs> well, well, not only that, do, it, you know, do I need to put a trolling motor on it? I said, I think I'll try to build a fan engine. So... I decided, uh, my conclusion was put a nice fan engine on this boat. So I thought, okay, I started looking around and, you know, there, that's not something you buy. You don't go to the store and buy a fan engine. So I did a little research and I said, well, okay, let me uh, go ahead and order this engine. I ordered the strongest engine I could at the time, which was a 35 horsepower Briggs and Stratton. Well, I'll never forget the, the motor came in, in a crate, and um, I put it in my shop. And I took it out of the crate, and I'm like, man, it's a cool motor. And I looked at it, and I stood there for a few seconds. And I'm like, well, heck, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> Long story short, lots of YouTubing, lots of research. I built a hell of a fan a fan boat altogether, but the fan engine is awesome. It's a 60-inch prop. You, um, you know, I had to. You, you got to learn how much pitch to put in your props to get more torque, or to, you know, depending on what you want, I wanted more torque. And, and there's so much to learn about it that I had to figure out as I went. You don't just put a blade on the on the engine and go. You can, but you're not going to get what you could be getting out of it. So so I, I created the uh, I built a fan engine, um, 60 inch prop. Uh, I bought a um, angle finder and I put 11 degrees of pitch in it because for this particular engine, you're going to get the most out of it at 3,300 RPM. Well, if you just throw your your prop up there. And you've got so much pitch in it that you think you're good, but you're only getting 2,000 RPM. You're not going to get near the torque or what you need out of that. So you angle the pitch, you get everything right, and you come out with a this 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 boat does really good and in, in six inches of water and full of vegetation. That fan will blow me right through it. All that being said, um, I had me a really good boat fishing boat, and from there I started guiding and. Um, has put a lot of fish in that boat, probably by the thousands, and lots of uh, clients that had a good time. And I've been with them about four times. I've had a blast every time. There's been a couple nights where the water was choppy and cloudy, and it was tough, but I've had fun every time we went out. Yeah, He's the, got an awesome boat. The, the, the worst enemy to a, a boat fisherman is wind and stained water. Unfortunately, Georgia is full of stained water. And we got plenty of wind. And yeah, so on a, on a windy <laughs> For night, for deer hunter, yeah, we got plenty of wind. It swirls. <laughs> yeah, there, there's nights where I've taken clients out and I saw a storm coming in, and and I know what's coming. But these clients may have flown in from New York, and so I, I I'd say, look, if you want to, we'll go out. It's up to you. But you know, I say you got to keep safety in mind. I mean, when I'm out there on that boat, I got four people's lives in my hand, and it's pitch black, and we're ten miles back in the middle of nowhere. If I have a heart attack, they're not going to know how to get back. So you know. All that's the stressful side of guiding and making sure that your boat is in tip-top shape and you have two of everything because you don't want someone to fly in from another state that's been looking forward to this for months and all at once say can't you know can't go out some boats broke so there, there's some stressful pieces to guiding a lot of people tell me but you're doing what you love now I do love bow fishing but guiding is a business and it's very stressful 
Hey guys, it's Mike. I wanted to take a quick minute and take a break from the show and tell you about one of our partners, Fatboy Blinds out of Reynolds, Georgia. Fatboy Blinds offers tower stands, ground blinds, deer feeders, all kinds of different types of customizable window configurations for the blinds, tinting, ceiling, you name it. I'm telling you, these guys are going to do it for you. One of the best things I think about this company is they offer an actual staircase that goes up to their tower stands. I know for me, I have two small kids. I've got a dad that's not as mobile as he used to be. So this is a great option for my family. Guys, we spend a lot of time doing projects like a tower stand or a blind or a feeder when we should really be looking for scrapes, rubs, travel, corridors, all the things that really do matter. A company like Fatboy Blinds is going to save you tons of time. And to be honest, time is money. So why tie it up in something like a long building project that's going to take you weekends, hours and hours of time? Even for those of you guys who are pretty handy, it's still a lot of time and effort. Also, one of the best things about Fatboy Blinds is if you're in the Georgia area, they will come to your property with your brand new blind standard feeder and drop it off exactly where you want it with their forklift. I mean, <laughs> how awesome is that? That's just one less thing you have to worry about having to do. Again, time saved. So guys, reach out to Fatboy Blinds in Reynolds, Georgia at 478-973-5315. That's 478-973-5315. Ask to speak to Walker. He's going to get you set up. Uh, they're also on Facebook and Instagram. So reach out to him on any of their social media or just contact him by phone. Guys, get yourself a fat boy. Gene's did a lot of hunting uh, for, you know, he's been to Africa. He's killed a lot of white-tailed deer and pigs around here and stuff. What would you say your your funnest hunt, which <clears throat> your, what, that you're most proud of, the animal you took? Was? Oh, man, that's, a, that's, that's, that's an easy one because of my Africa trip, which I'm very proud of a lot of things I've done here in the States for whitetail. Um, I'm very upset because I have not taken an elk yet. I've been on only two elk hunts. You know, those hunts I could save my pennies for and and I go on. But um, my favorite hunt so far, I was in Africa. And, and just so everybody knows, Africa is way more affordable than people think. You really? can go to Africa and take four, five, six animals for less than you can go on an elk hunt here in the States. I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised to hear that. You know, and I've heard, too, that, you know, a lot of people go to Africa not only just to, you know, to kill their trophy, but also they end up feeding a village when they do exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. That's got to be, honestly, as a hunter, like, down deep in my soul, if I could, because I, when I kill whitetails, you know, just because I want people to love hunting, if you don't like hunting, great, but if I can share meat with you and <clears> you can understand that what this is whole thing is about and I can give you about it's having my passion being shared with right. somebody else that maybe they're not a hunter, but then maybe they'll look at hunting a little bit differently. And that to me, that's kind of what I feel like as a hunter, but that's a lot of our core values. And to do that in another continent, that's yeah. freaking awesome. So tell us about <laughs> yeah, that. I gotta it, know. Especially when you, when you go to Africa, I'm, I'm going to stay off the political side of things in America, but people in America do not realize how, good they've got it made here they don't realize the blessings they have until you travel to a third world country That's right so um so in africa um my, my what was some going to talk about my my favorite memory of all uh there's a, a a critter called a bush pig in africa most people don't get a bush pig in their lifetime 
Most people don't bow hunt bush pigs. This is not a warthog. It's a bush right. Pig. It is not okay. a warthog. It's a very strange looking animal. It looks like really? a, it looks like a daggone werewolf demon is what it looks like. Um, <laughs> the way they hunt bush pigs in Africa, for the most part, is they hunt it. They bait them and they hunt at night only. So we're we're hunting. I'm sitting there with my PHs. Uh, PH, by the way, is called professional hunter. Um, that's basically a guide in America. But um, uh, there was a few of us in the blind, and I'm sitting there, and we we seen some critters come in, some animals, some you know small animals I don't want to take. Well, through the bush, I see some bush pig coming in, and I didn't think much of it. You know, I said, "Hey, look, here comes a bush pig." Well, my guides went berserk. They're like, "There, there's that words were you're shitting me. There is no bush pig." And I said, "Well, I think it's a bush pig." And you tell me. And he looked up and I'm like, "Oh my God, Gene, get your bow, get your bow." And so um, I grabbed my bow. Bush pigs will come in, and they usually have the boar as a leader, and then you have your sow and some other ones. Well, they're there for a very short time. And my guy said, "Gene, you've got to quickly make the shot. The shot was 45 yards, by the way." And the the uh, the boar was standing beside like three sows, and he said, "Can you make your arrow go over the sows and contact you know impact on the boar?" Well, they were side by side, and I said, I turned and looked at him, and I said, "Man, I can do this all day long at home on a target." I said, "But I am not promising anything here." He said, "Well, go for it." So I made the shot, and it's, it's on YouTube. It is a beautiful, beautiful shot. And I, I don't mind patting myself on the back on this one. <laughs> right. Um, the I've arrow, seen it. It's very impressive. The arrow goes just barely over the uh, sow's back and impacts perfectly into the boar, and he runs off just a few steps. Just and, like that. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that in there. No, that's, yeah. all, that's awesome. So, I mean, so they got, they got the Gene Hobbs uh, trick shot. But no, it's how, wait, how many yards was it? So that was forty-five yards. Okay, so this was not this was not a hundred and thirty no, no, yard. No. Or... But even even at forty-five for a shot like that, I was just I was amazed. The guys they were so giddy. They were like, "Oh my god, oh my god, I can't believe this!" And I was I actually was a little confused. Like, wow, man, I wonder why they're so excited. You know? But this is an unusual thing for a bow hunter to take a bush pig in Africa. And they it happens. It's very 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 rare. I don't know that anybody else has that on video. Um, yeah, I'd have to look out there and see. I'm sure there may be one or two somewhere, but but the shot, I'll I'll, I'll remember that shot till the day I die. That's awesome. Um, but getting back to the meat side of things, any time any animal I've taken in Africa, I let my guys know I want to eat a portion of that meat while Absolutely, I'm there. Absolutely, I have uh, to. <clears throat> unfortunately, we can't take any of that home, you know, right. for legalities and things like that. But um, so I'm I'm going to bring up a zebra, um, just because there's a lot of people that just don't understand about the number of animals in Africa and the diseases that can be caused if you allow the numbers to get too high. So I decided, I said, I would like to take one zebra, and I'll tell you, a zebra is hard to hunt as a very intelligent whitetail buck. Really? They will wind you, they will get out of town, they will, they will, they're, they're jumpy the whole time, they're headed towards the water. So a real, a really good um, stallion came in. I made a, a really good shot on that. There's a there's like a triangle of, of, of stripes, and I wanted to put my arrow in the bottom of this triangle right in the center of the shoulder. So I made the shot, and he didn't he didn't go far at all. I mean, maybe, I don't know, 80, 90 yards fell over there. He was running dead, basically. So I'm telling you all that to tell you this. I said, well, I've always heard all my life that zebra meat is delicious. I said, right, yeah, I have too. Right, I said, I want to see if this is really true, so let's have this tonight at, at, at camp. So um, sure enough, the guys, they, they cook great meals there. 
Well, they cooked a zebra that night, and it was so good that I requested that for the next couple of nights. I said, we got any zebra left? You got any zebra left? That's awesome. um, But out in the bush, there's lots of ranches. Those ranches, um, they have a lot of workers, a lot of people. with All the meat that we don't get to keep, it feeds every one of them people. Nothing is wasted from these animals. That's awesome. And I'm all about utilizing whatever I take. You know, I, I never... Yeah, there may be times in life where you know, okay, there's a thousand um, feral hogs in, in this county. You know, we just got to get some. I can understand that, but majority of the time, I want to eat what I whatever I take. I, I me consume. too. I mean, I like you said the specifically our wild feral hogs here in Georgia. I mean, shoot, I'm sure Texas feels the same way. But I mean, as a hunter, it's really, really for me. I mean, I'm sorry. When an animal walks out in front of me, my mouth starts watering. Like I, I, I want to eat. You know, <laughs> like I want to well, eat what I kill. Well, and on top of that, the food, the meat is so much better for you. You know, there's no steroids, yeah. there's no antibiotics in it. You're eating organic meat. I mean, I was just in um, Panama City here a few days ago, and I took a couple of stingrays on my bow. Well, on the boat, I filleted those stingrays, and I, I'm tomorrow night. I'm having fried stingray nuggets for oh, that dinner, sounds delicious. and I'm looking forward to it. A lot of people don't realize it, but they've probably eaten stingray buying scallops in restaurants. Yeah, you I'm know, all- I wanted to ask you that because I've heard that stingray tastes exactly like scallops, and I'm a scallop nut. So you're saying that at the restaurants, I've probably eaten stingray. That is awesome. So I've heard that also, Kelby. Um, throughout my life, I often wonder. If it's true or not, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I've want- cleaned a stingray before and seen the. Te- it's got a very distinct texture of it. They do, and, they and have- I have had scallops that had that same texture. Right, they'll stamp them out round like mm-hmm. a scallop. But my question is, how can a restaurant claim you're eating this a scallop and serve you something else? But we uh, went. We was working the Buckmasters in uh, Birmingham. I think it's Birmingham. It's in Alabama. Mm-hmm. One of those big towns in Alabama. That's about right with Buckmasters. Yeah. Um, and we got scallops from a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we asked the waitress there, is this really scallops? We're going to order it anyways, but is this scallops? And she said it was actually shark. So I've <laughs> heard uh, two common things that they replace scallops with is shark and stingray. Wow. And I know that I've had scallops before that was the same texture yeah they do have the same texture now now the cow nose rays we shot the other night they were more of a red meat so you would know the difference between that but the bull rays they're they're the color of scallops so who knows yeah yeah awesome so where was y'all bow fishing at in florida was you in like brackish water or were you so i was i was a little discouraged on this trip because typically if i do this i go down in the springtime and in this particular area we're in a bay area Mm -hmm. and we'll we'll go as far as the inlet where the water's rough pouring into the bay. But in the springtime, and we could see down typically 8, 10 feet. The water's beautiful, and you would see the bull rays by, by the numbers. Well, on this trip, we had to, I had to put forth some effort, and the only thing I was able to find was cow nose rays. Um, keep in mind that there's been a lot of storms. You know, We just had two hurricanes go through there, Fred and Ida, and the water's a rusty red, and you couldn't see down but two or three feet. So that, that made it very challenging. But, yeah. Um, I'm thinking springtime though they're more they may be maybe like a spawn or something I don't know but we do see a lot of stingrays um, in springtime there I've taken one that was right at 100 pounds I mean like a 100 the, pound oh, wait yeah. was that a female or a male uh, I couldn't tell you <laughs> you know on a, you know when I, my honeymoon we went on uh, a cruise and they had a this is before Steve Irwin got taken out by a stingray right. and it was a swim with stingrays kind of thing and I'm like this is great 
My wife was like, of course. She's like, she's creeped out. But the feet, I noticed the females are like the size of this table, like a dinner table. And then like the males are like, you know, <clears throat> naturally smaller. So yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm not a connoisseur of that, of, of knowing, not, I don't really know that much about stingrays. I just know what a bull ray looks like. And I know, I know the legal rays that we can shoot. Right. But uh, we saw a big, huge mud boil. And I said, man, that was something big. And we ease the boat forward. And I'm like, holy cow. I mean, he looked like a car hood. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it's not that they're that hard to hit. But once you hit one, you better put two or three more arrows in it because a, a, a ray that size will drag the boat around. And lots of meat on that one. And we get them in the boat. And I, I make everybody step back because, again, you just mentioned Steve Irwin. Right. Um, I would, what I do is I, I step on their tail. With, with my shoe and then I'll just grab their barb and I'll hold the barb and I'll take a knife and slice right right under the barb and get the barb off then they're harmless but to give you an idea how how bad news that barb is we had two or three in the floor of the boat a couple of them were 30 pounds a couple of them 40 50 pounds and I tell the clients I said let me show you why I'm making you stay away from this and I picked one of them up and I moved him over to the other one he, he uh, swung his tail it stuck right in the um, other stingray that was probably 40 pounds well, I lifted up the one in my hands, and that barb lifted up the 40-pound stingray. Oh. And it come out, and it went in, it, it penetrated that uh, stingray so easily. I said, that's, that's what they'll do to your leg or anything else. I've heard uh, stories of, like, islanders have taken stingrays, and that's what they're brought in. That technically was for their spear. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that I can imagine. So yeah. you can do all that. They're so. there. Uh, you we should sell stingray broadheads. <laughs> That's how we're going to expand the thirst. I've got, I've got some cool barbs. From <laughs> so, what's your plans for this deer season? You know, I think we're, well, we got deer season coming up in two yeah, weeks now. Um, the only plan I have so far, other than I, I used, to, I was in a club for twenty six years. I got out of that club for lots of reasons. Uh, the way the pulpwood company was handling the land, things like that. So, um, at this time, I hunt a lot of public land in Georgia. I'm hoping to find time to hunt public land outside the state more often than I do. But I, I am supposed to take a trip to Ohio to the Lost Shed Lodge. I'm looking really forward to that. The guy has some really good bucks that he posts. Uh, he, I, I love to see people that own these this land and they got it or whatever. I love to see them excited. If they're excited, that tells me I want to hunt with it's, them. It's all free range, right? Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely free. You know, nothing against people that don't hunt free range, but for me, I can't see me ever hunting a free range deer or anything like that. So yeah, everything I hunt is free range. Yeah, I, for me, you know, I, I mean, there's such a debate on that. We could probably do a whole episode on free range versus high fence. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I, I see the purpose of fencing to keep certain things out, but not to keep the deer in. I, I can understand, like, I mean, if you're trying to stop yotes or you're trying to stop, you know, maybe hogs, but good luck if you're able to do that but i mean i i don't see i mean it, for a plethora of reasons and I, I the the rumor is that's how cwd got started but don't quote me on that yeah, knows, i don't who know knows. who knows how that actually got started but well you know if you go to africa i probably have some people listening to this and well you hunted fence in africa well anywhere you go in africa there's a fence and it's really? not it's not to it's not so that the hunter can come and hunt an animal in a fence. It's designed to keep lions out. Now, this fence is, is a 10,000-acre fence. Um, it may be designed to keep lions out. And I've seen kudu hop this fence at eight feet high. So eight it's feet? Eight feet bounce over it like it is nothing. 
So yeah, there's fencing. I mean, and, I've seen whitetail get all the way up to like seven feet. I mean, pretty. I'm like, and picture dog. a six or seven hundred pound kudu bounce over it like it's Ooh, nothing. That's awesome. So that's so if they allow lions to get in certain ranches, they yeah. will have no animals left to hunt. So mm-hmm. they 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 manage all that via their fences. They manage their poachers via their fences. In Africa, people, and I was going to ask about that because poaching in Africa, I seem to hear more about. There's poachers everywhere, but I hear poaching in Africa is pretty rampant yeah they uh, the the good thing is the people that have ranches the poachers know if they're caught on that ranch here in america you say get off my property i'll take you to court you they'll, get, sh- they'll shoot you, you get, if he's the lions. you'll get shot in africa <laughs> they know you're gonna get shot in africa wow. that's the livelihood that's what feeds people that's what keeps the ranches going so and, uh, and i wish the anti-hunters would you know just step off the high horse for like a second mm-hmm. just understand this like a whole lively it's not just so some rich guy in Africa can make a lot of money he's feeding an entire and I can tell you these guys aren't rich they have their ranch and they're struggling to make ends meet and hunters are one of the primary ways I make ends meet and talking about um, antis on a high horse let me tell you about uh, giraffes a lot of people don't realize why people hunt giraffes for me I can't see me ever hunting a giraffe Uh, for me it would be too easy to me it's like shooting the side of a barn but that but nothing wrong with that nothing against the people that do it that take a high power rifle and shoot 130 i have nothing against that it's just not for me but the reason you have to hunt giraffe or take giraffe out in some form or fashion is the bull giraffes the 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 big bad giraffes that kicks all the other younger giraffes butts they'll you know he's breeding the females Right. Well, the younger bulls, they want to come in and breed the females. So the the, the uh, primary bull, he'll he'll fight them and make them leave. Well, it's like, it's like our bucks will do, right. our dominant bucks will do. But the difference is, as that bull gets older, he's pretty much sterile. He's no longer <laughs> making babies. But he's, it's just the it's just that time of year, and he's just he's ready. To, those are his women. <laughs> exactly. He never wants to let his hammer women go, so he still fights those younger bulls, and he they can get them out of there. Okay, and if he if he lives another three or four years, you probably stopped. I don't know. 30, 40 giraffes from being born. Right. So they get the old bulls out of the herd so the young bulls can come in and continue to make giraffe babies. Now, let me tell you this. There's no shortage of giraffes. When I first arrived and we go out hunting first day, I'm like, man, there's a giraffe. I'm jumping up and down like, that's so cool. I saw a giraffe. Well, by the fourth day, I'm like, oh, my God, there's another giraffe. There's another well, freaking brontosaurus over just over there. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I feel like if I, when I ever saw, if I ever was to go hunt a giraffe, it would be like that Jurassic Park moment where they have the... I, mean, I, could, I could just see myself getting freaked out, awesome, like excited about that. But, you yeah. know, but there, you're saying, like, hey, they're everywhere, dude. Yeah, and it's, like, it's like seeing a, a blackbird here. I'll tell you <laughs> something I've heard, right. and maybe Gene can clarify this. I've heard that some of those older bulls will actually kill the younger bulls. They will. They're in a fight. That sounds they, like true. That sounds true. The two horns on their head, I used to wonder, well, I wonder what those feel like. Well, they're solid bone, and they will swing their neck and hit each other in the head and neck, and they'll kill each other doing that. I, I watched them fight out there, and trust me, if one of those were to swing their head and hit a human, he would catapult that human probably 50 feet 
That is how strong these things are. I'm just over here laughing, just thinking about two giraffes <laughs> slinging their necks at each other. Oh, it's a sight to see. <laughs> Can you imagine this? I mean, it's probably brutal. I'm sure it's it brutal. It is brutal. You can see videos on I'm YouTube. Sure I'm it is brutal. I, I want to say I've seen that before, but if you just stop thinking about that, it's hilarious. Just these two long neck things. Just well, and on the same note, baboons. You know, I, I took a really nice baboon out there. A baboon? I, right. And people are like, oh, why don't okay. you shoot a baboon? So, so yeah, I guess if, you really, if you're really into the whole Darwinism, I I guess like if you're shooting something closely we're I mean whatever whatever you believe but it's like shooting a baboon I would feel like that's so close to a human <laughs> so, so, so think about how we feel about our coyotes I mean yeah there's right. too many we had oh, them. they do a lot of damage they kill I will kill every coyote I All see right. well that's what a baboon is in Africa they are deadly. They are dangerous. Lions. So do they are. They are a nuisance. Big time nuisance. I'm fit to tell you stories. It's gonna blow your mind. So so lions, in my opinion, they fear the baboons because you will not see lions mess with a baboon unless it's just one or two. Baboons fight all you know in a group. Lions just assume leave them alone. They don't even want a part of them. Their fangs are huge. So I took a baboon that I held up in front of me. So he's right at six foot. His feet were just above my head. And his shoulders was down by my feet and his arms hanging down. So they get huge. Um, and I'm going to, let's see, I'll start with this. So the baboon goes out there. I, I range him at 80 yards. And I asked my guy, I said, you mind if I take a shot at that? This is with a bow. With a bow. <laughs> and the, to make it even more challenging, he was sitting sideways. He was not sitting where I see his shoulders and chest. He was sideways. He sat down with his, his little group of you know, a dozen other baboons. And uh, my guy said, you think you can hit that, Gene? I said, well, look, again, at home I can hit this target. But, you know, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. So I draw back, and I nail it. And um, to show you how even the workers there are concerned about the baboons, we tracked him down. He's laying beside a tree, and um, they wanted to validate that he had expired. So they told one of the workers there, they said... Um, <laughs> dispatch him. Yeah, dispatch him. And the guy said, no. Well, these guys never say no. He said, I will not approach the baboon. And I'm really? like, I'm like, I'll do it. I, you know, Heck yeah, man. I would be like, well, hold on, let me knock this arrow real quick. Well, I, was, I had a knife. I didn't, you know, we're just oh, going to go up there and finish right. him with a knife. So you were going to dispatch him with a knife. Yeah, that's that's what I did. So uh, my PH said, Gene, you don't understand. He said, if he has a breath of life in him, he said, he will be at you and he's going for nothing but your throat. And he said, they go you, for the jugular yeah, immediately. He, he said, there's nothing we're going to be, we're not going to be able to do anything about it because it'll happen in a split second. And I said, look, guys, he's laying right by this tree. I said, I'll, I'll get sideways beside the tree. So and dude, I'm from Georgia. There. All right, Dad. <laughs> Hold my beer now. So, um, but anyway, the, I think the, he was dead. So I did jump around the tree, spiring with a knife, and all was good. But that shows you the fear they have of them. So here's a story that I was going to tell you. They're, um, they're such a nuisance. I mean, you're, you're going down the highway, and baboons are running back and forth across highways with babies on their backs and things. Well, there was one particular ranch out there where the, there's a husband and wife on the ranch. The husband will go out each day to work the ranch with all the workers and whatnot. Well, this one particular baboon, they're, they're very intelligent animals. He would wait until the, um, the, the owner, the, the guy, would leave, and then he would harass the woman all day. He'd jump on the roof, tear up shingles in the roof, try to get in the house, and the moment the owner of the ranch would drive back up, he would leave. The moment the owner of the ranch would, would go to work the next day, the baboon comes back. He was wanting to kill that woman. That's how they put it to me. He said that baboon wanted to kill the woman. So they had to hunt it down and take it out. So we're in, um, we're in a, um, our blinds one day, and the ranch that we were at, they always make sure they close the doors and lock them. 
Well, one of the workers forgot. To, you're in the middle of the bush, and you close the door. Yeah, I was about to say this is the middle of the bush in Africa. <laughs> well, there's a lot of bad things that go in Africa, separate from what I'm talking about. Oh, sure. Um, farmers getting killed left and right. But um, so another reason they lock doors is so the baboons and monkeys will not go inside. Well, they left. This them. reminds me so much of bears in like Alaska. Much. Well, here's 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 the one the the one kicker that's going to shock you. So they'll go in there and they'll ransack the place. So we're we're in the blind. Um, we get a call on the cell phone, and it was one of the workers apologizing, saying, I'm sorry, I left the door unlocked, and I, the baboons come in. And what they do is they'll go in there, and they will defecate in the center of every room in there, right dead center, and then they'll ransack the place. So they get, probably, I guarantee you that's not funny. I just, <laughs> sorry. So they, I'm such an immature idiot. They, you know? they, they did that in the kitchen. They did it in the eatery area, and they couldn't get anywhere else, and they just tore cabinets open and so they're a major nuisance there so that sounds worse than a bear i mean i've seen bears take out half half of the whole a whole trailer before like you know like it's nothing but i mean it sounds like that'd be can you imagine how disgusting baboon dude yeah. is what makes them decide hey just they know it pisses you they're, they know they're, it's just, by. they're screwed right with you dude the like they're absolutely screwed right with the in humans. the center of the room so i sent a video uh, two or three weeks ago they were hunting in Africa. They were using dogs. I want to say they were hunting warthogs, maybe. I can't mm-hmm. exactly remember. But the dogs got into a group of baboons, and one of the baboons actually killed one of the dogs. Yeah, oh, they're deadly. I do, You do not want one to ever get a hold of you. They're, they're deadly. Yeah. All right, so, Gene, earlier we we kind of talked about your warthog experience. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, man. You know, a lot of people, they have their favorite animal in, in Africa that they want to take. Um, and I did too. You know, I, I took a couple of kudu. Love those. Those just beautiful, huge animals. But my favorite, this within my budget, my favorite is a warthog. And people go, are you serious? I'm like, to me, that is the most beautiful, ugly animal on the planet. I mean, it really is. They are. They are something else. They're unique. But they're, you know, here in the States, here in Georgia, you know, we have our wild boar, feral hogs. And you have some tusks that come out a couple of inches. You get a hold of a good warthog, and I just love those prehistoric teeth coming outside their face, wrapping up around their head. So I managed to take two on this last trip, and one of them I, I did a full body mount on, and it was a good clear pass through. I was shooting a ram cat, um, broadhead, passed through him at 43 yards. Um, and uh, shot, let's see, I was, shooting, uh, I was shooting my obsession lawless on that uh, particular trip. Pretty much everything I passed through except for a sable on that trip. Sable was huge. They said shooting a sable is like shooting a blocked target. That's how hard they are. But back to the warthog. While we were sitting there one day hunting to show you how uh, cruel nature can be, a pretty good-sized warthog came in, but it wasn't quite the size of the one that I had taken the day before, so we were just watching him. Well, a smaller warthog comes in beside him and decides to drink beside him. The bigger um, boar warthog turned around, and all he did was hit him with his head and tossed this probably the the smaller warthog. I don't know. He's I don't know. He's 40, 50 pounds maybe. Right. Tossed him up in there probably seven or eight feet. As this warthog was Wait, seven or eight. Feet? Oh, every bit of it. Oh, he tossed. Wow. He he first kind of grumbled at it, and the little one kept drinking beside him, and so he just turned around and stuck his his big old tooth. Um, it went right in his side, 
threw him up in the air. Well, he comes tumbling down, and before that small warthog hit the ground, he hit him again, and there was a dead tree laying there and tossed him up in the limbs of this tree. Jeez. So, um, Whoa. Yeah, did he it was, kill him? He, he, sure it did, and I'll tell you what happened. So uh, when we saw that, the big warthog just looked at him and turned around and walked off. Well, the little warthog, I'm sitting, you know, 30, 40, 50 pounds, I'm not sure, he's standing there, and I said, oh, man, his guts are hanging out of his side. And um, so my PH said, Gene, can you make the shot? Can you make the shot? Well, he was walking off into the bush. And, and another thing I do with my bows, I don't just take a shot. I take a shot when I think I can make the shot. Right. And I, I was not confident on the shot, so I didn't take it. But um, so we jumped out of the, PA, the, the blind and ran over there with the PH's backup rifle. Because what they want to do is take out a wounded animal like that in case it gets a disease and spreads across the entire ranch. Right. But uh, we, we didn't see him anymore, and I'm pretty, you know, odds are uh, um, a hyena got him that night. There's mm-hmm. hyenas all over there. But it, that's just how cruel nature is. I mean, this big warthog just didn't want any other warthog around him, so he, he literally killed this warthog. Man, and I think our hogs are territorial and mean. <laughs> Those warthogs, are, it's a whole nother monster. Me and Gene's actually did a, a good bit of hunting together. I've been on a few bow fishing trips, and... You, we've hog hunted every time we've ever went out we've been successful with the hogs and um you know we went out turkey hunting once do you want to tell them about our turkey hunt yeah man i mean there's that was a textbook hunt um i i'd be amazed if i ever have a hunt that good again for turkey hunting because i don't get to turkey hunt as often as i like um so on this particular hunt i've killed maybe a dozen turkey with a shotgun in the past but I always tell Kelby and a few other. I say, you know, I, I want to kill a turkey with a bow. You know, a lot of people have done it. So this is your this was your first my turkey first turkey with a bow, bow wow. right? And it's because I don't have much opportunity to turkey hunt, and you you need good, pretty good land to be able to hunt call up a turkey. Mm-hmm. So on public land, that's very challenging. So um, hold on, hold on one second, Gene. I just want to state. This was one of those things where I honestly did not even think we was going to see any turkeys. There was no scouting involved. We just went out to a place that I know sometimes I've seen turkeys there right. before. I mean, the good Lord blessed us that day for awesome. sure. So we, um, I met up with Kelby. He said, "Yeah, come on, you know, come on out to the house. We, we've got some around here. We hear them gobbling every now and then." So we go out to their land. Uh, we set up for just a moment. I mean, maybe 30, 40 minutes. We made a few calls. I think we heard a turkey gobble way off in the distance, but nothing was going to happen with that. So Kelby suggested that we, you know, take a little walk and we'll just, you know, stop, and make a few calls, a few clucks, and keep going. So we, gosh, we didn't walk far. I mean, I don't know, 200 yards. And Maybe. We, yeah, and we heard one off in the distance, and we happened to stop. And this grown-up food plot that was maybe, a, I don't know, a 30-yard food plot, 25-yard yeah. food plot. And so I said, yeah, I said, can we hear that? He's like, yeah, I heard that. I said, well, let's, let's see what he does. So we waited a minute. We made a couple more calls. Well, he responded. I said, well, that's, that's a good sign. He's responding right away. So we stood there for one more minute, and he responded again, and we could tell he had closed the distance. And I swear he had to be 200-plus yards when we first started. That's adrenaline jump. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, oh, white, yeah, white-tail yeah. hunters, but, you know, those turkeys, especially if you get them during the turkey season and they're, they're responding well, to you, that's that's adrenaline. Well, and my, my negative mind is, oh, this is going to work out like other turkey hunts. So you hear them, they come a little bit, then you never see them. You know, yeah. Like, Let's, you know, let's, let's at least go for it. Well, there was a little island in the middle of this 20-yard food plot just where there was a sapling there, maybe, I don't know, 20 feet tall, and some briars in it. 
So I told Kelby, I said, well, heck, he might be coming in. Let's let's set up right here. So I didn't, you know, I didn't close myself in a blind or anything. I just took a little chair I had and I set it right under that sapling. Kelby got over behind me, maybe another 20, 30 feet away. He pretty much is laid on the ground. I was trying to get as close to the ground as mm-hmm. possible to so because they have very good eyesight and I didn't want them to bust. Oh, me. absolutely. So, so the way this lamb was positioned, um, the layout of this land, the turkey was way down in a hollow. So he had to come up a, a hill and top the hill. And, and I, I put out one decoy about 20, 25 yards from me. I put one decoy out. And uh, we waited a couple of minutes. I didn't want to overcall. So I made a club. Then Kelby made a club behind me. Well, this joker was coming in. And I'm, you know, I'm getting all excited and adrenaline rushes going. And I'm like, this might actually work out. And then, and then on top of that, you're like, okay, but you still got to make the shot. <laughs> That's the hard thing. So uh, no time, this turkey comes in, and he comes in full strut. We don't see him coming to us because of the hill that he had to come out of. Mm -hmm. He tops the hill. Fortunately, I was in a position where I didn't have to turn much, and all I really had to do was draw my bow back. Well, he tops the hill um, probably at 35 yards away, and he just makes a beeline towards the, uh, the decoy that I had out. And so I just drew back and like, well, he's coming. Let me go and draw back. He was so focused on the decoy that he did not see me draw. He didn't care. Right. That target was ready to work. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, there's my 30 yard pin, center of his chest. Let me go ahead and touch the trigger. And I held just a touch low because I, I I think he's about 25 yards, and I just nailed him. I mean, it went right nice. below his right below his beard, came out his back leg. Well, he limps and he, he takes off, kind of walking really fast. And I've always heard, you know, I mean, if you see that, you better run after him and get him. So I jump up and I run towards him. Well, he flies off. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I just put a big old broad head through the center of this turkey's chest. No, it came out, it penetrated, went through. And so uh, I looked at Kelby. And I, I, Kelby, I, if I remember right, you said, well, you, you weren't sure if I hit him good or what. You didn't really when he fl- see that. Whenever you got up and he flew, I was still laying on the ground. And mm-hmm. I remember looking up at the turkey and seeing his leg hang. Yeah. And kind of dangle as he was flying. So I was thinking maybe you hit him too low and just cut through yeah, the fat so, part of his thigh or something. And that's the difference when you got two people hunting and two, 30 feet apart. I mean, I saw the arrow just dead center right where I wanted it. So I said, well, let's, let's go ahead and go. Kelly said, yeah, let's wait a minute. Let's walk back to the truck, put some things up. So we did, and we went back to where he flew off at. And I said, I think he went that way. So Kelby and I split up just a little bit. I went a little to the right. Kelby was... To my left, maybe 30 or 40 yards, and you know, I'm starting to feel a little let down. I'm like, man, I know he's dead. Oh, yeah. Are we going to accidentally walk up on him? And about that time, <laughs> Kelby's like, Gene, here he is. <laughs> and, man, I'm giddy. I'm jumping up, and I take off running over there, and uh, he's just laying there. It's really nice. I think I had an eight- or nine-inch beard. Uh, one thing that stood out, Kelby said, look at his color, and that joker was beautiful it was a beautiful bird nice and uh so uh long story short i got it mounted in full strut and i was just tickled to death because it was my very first turkey with a bow right um that's awesome i don't think i've seen that mount yet yeah i think you i don't know next time you come out you'll see he's he's in the living room he's he's gorgeous but um you know and that that was a bucket list thing to me that was as exciting as uh my 150 inch eight point i I took i mean it was that exciting to me oh yeah definitely i'm i'm Definitely going to get in the woods on the turkeys this year for myself, so I'm looking forward to doing it. Well, that. get ready to be let down often. Because yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 did get, I did try this past year and a little bit, and I, and I, I did have one call back at me, and it was just like you said. It's like, oh, here we go, dude. It responded. Oh, 
know, yeah, so yeah like, they respond and then that's it. Or either you, over. or you're out there all day long with the gnats and the heat and you don't yeah. hear anything. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're trying your best. It's, my it's, goal this season is going to be to take my first turkey with a bow. Yeah, same here. Make it happen. Same here. I'm not even going to go with a shotgun. I'm just going to going to go for it with it with, with the bow only. So you know, I mean, we we goof off a lot. I, me and Kelby, we're both dumb. <laughs> but so, Gene, what is some of the what is one of the dumbest things you think you've done in the woods? Oh, Drop my bow out of the tree, I guess. Well, yeah, maybe that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, what? I, I don't know. Maybe live more. I guess live dangerously. Uh, but what what have you done? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I live dangerously, but I do honestly try to be very careful. But I've walked up on rattlesnakes before and and Ooh. wondered if they. Would... I'm a I'm a huge giant sissy when it comes to venomous snakes. Now I I love I love I I love the king snake just right. because he will the king snake will absolutely kill anything venomous. Yeah. But yeah, you know, outside of that, you know, and even rat snakes, I don't bother them either. They don't really scare me that much, but. I I just do not full of venomous snakes. Yeah, I um I'll let one live if I don't think I'm going to be in that area or I'm not going to hunt that tree the next morning. But uh, so a couple of good stories. Um, we were I was going down a trail one day and big huge timber rattler comes right out in the middle of the mm-hmm. four wheeler trail, and my nephew was going to be hunting forty yards from there the next day in a blind in a food plot, and I thought you know what if I don't take this snake out and tomorrow. Uh, my nephew gets bit and something happens. I'll feel guilty the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wanted to take the snake also because he had a beautiful hide, just gorgeous timber rattler. They do. They're pretty. Well, the moment he saw us, he coiled, and I was looking for a big you know, branch because I didn't want to shoot him. I didn't want to damage the skin. I, was, I knew I was going to keep that skin. So I was looking for a big branch, and if you just – take a big, long branch and hit a snake over the back. That's pretty much all she wrote for that snake. <laughs> well, as I'm looking, he, he crawls off into kudzu right on the side of the trail. Oh, forget that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, he's going straight towards the area we would be hunting this morning. I didn't know if he was going to lay up there all night or what. So I looked down, and I saw his head in the kudzu, and I have uh, followed his body. He wasn't coiled. He was kind of stretched out, easing through the kudzu. And I thought, well, let me see if I can get this joker out. Well, at, uh, at the time, I, I was married, and uh, my wife said, what are you doing? And I stood over in the kudzu, but I kept an eye on his head. And I reached down, and I grabbed him by the tail. <laughs> and No, no. As, as I grabbed him, I knew there was no way he was going to be able to turn around and strike at me because he was all in these vines. I knew it was impossible for him to, to bite me. So... I grabbed him by the tail, and I start walking backwards back to the open um, trail I was in. And I'm thinking, okay, the moment I get him out of his kudzu, he's going to start striking. But, you know, with all the things we see with snakes, I've messed with snakes all my life. And, you know, the things you see on Discovery Channel, a two-foot snake I wouldn't have done this with. This snake was six foot. I knew I could shake him as he tried to turn towards me. And he would lose the strength. He wouldn't be able to strike at me at that distance. So I pulled him out on the trail, and sure enough, he turned. And just as he went to strike, I just kind of shook his the back of his tail. I had about my hand was about five inches, probably five or ten inches down from his rattles, and I just gave him a jerk, and it straightened him out again. And I did this two or three times until I got him in the middle of the trail. At which point he coiled up, and then um, I took a stick and I took him out and took him home and skinned him. And here's something a lot of people don't know. Snake makes a fine meal. That too. A lot of people know that. This is something a lot of people don't know. 
this snake, um, any snake I ever take, uh, if it's a poison snake, I like to look at their fangs. It's just, you know, like, yeah. hey, let me see if I can get some poison come out, and I'll put it over, you know, a jar, or stick, or whatever. Well, I opened his mouth when I got home. This timber rattler had three fangs on one side and two fangs on the other side. That's crazy. So, huge fangs. I mean, enough. That's crazy. Did it just sent kind of chills down my spine knowing that this is what's out in these woods. If we get bit, this is what we're in for. Right. So I did some research. I couldn't find out. They're just like sharks. Sharks are always losing teeth, biting something, and dropping teeth. Well, the same thing goes with some of our snakes. They may bite a rabbit, a squirrel, and their their fangs are actually kind of fragile. And let's say they bite a big rabbit, and the rabbit takes off, they might snap their fangs off. So they're constantly growing new fangs, and they you know only the two pop out that they need at the time. But yeah, he had three fangs on one side, two on the other side. So uh, so there, there's that little incident. But you know, again, I was being careful, but probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Um, just last year, I was in public, some public land, and I'm walking around, and I look down, and there's a timber rattler, but he was only maybe maybe two feet long. And I'm thinking, okay, I got my snake boots on, I got my snake leggings on. I wonder if this joker would strike me if I walk right so beside you're, it. So you're getting ready to test the integrity uh, of your snake straps. <laughs> well, I figured his With a size. Timber, the cane break timber rattlesnake, Okay. <laughs> So I figured, okay, this size, he's he's not going to penetrate these snake boots. There's just no way. So, but I was I was doing it to to learn something. I wanted to see how aggressive he was going to be as a person walking by a snake without knowing it. So I walked right past him. He didn't budge. I mean, I put my boot right in front of his face. He didn't budge. So I backed up and I did this two or three times. Walked behind him, and all he would do was turn his head and look towards me. He never would strike. So finally, I'm like, well, come on, man, strike. Let me see what you got. So I put my boot on top of him, and not not pressure, didn't stomp him. I just laid my boot right on top. At that point, he finally turned around and bit my boot. But again, he couldn't do anything. He just bit it and let go. And so I took my foot off, and that 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 alarmed him enough to know that, okay, I better get out there. At that, at that point, all he wanted to do was leave. So he starts crawling off. So I said, okay, he's really aggravated now. And he never rattled. Not one time did this little joker rattle. So I stood in front of him as he started crawling off. Well, he finally said, dude, I've had enough of you. And he started rattling and he coiled up. <laughs> and then I put my boot in front of him and he struck at me. But mm. moral of the story is, look what it took to make this snake strike. Right. I, you know, a crazy story. I've got my nephew, both my nephews, my nephew, my youngest nephew's first year hunting. My oldest nephew was going to go too. And we took him out right about this time of year, right around mm-hmm. September to do some final preseason stuff. And, you know, both of them were super stoked to go hunting and everything and do the pre-work. They, I was so proud of them. They, they were swinging axes, machetes, getting it done and just getting ready for deer season. So we go down to my, my dad hunts a creek bottom and where there's an old creek bed and there's a ridge and a creek on the other side. So I would think the first thing I, I was looking for something like moccasins or something to be down there, but yeah, I hadn't seen a snake on this property at all. And I, and I, now I did tell the boys, Hey, we're coming into the woods. I've never seen a snake on this property, not even as much as a garter snake. But I, guys, I'm going to tell you, we are in the woods. I can guarantee you there are snakes here at some point. And I, it's like, I, I don't know, I jinxed us so bad. So we go down. <laughs> I had a great day. We've been out there for three hours just getting it. We're finally filling some, we're filling up a feeder. I got the four-wheeler parked under the feeder. I got one nephew, you know, pouring corn in a bucket. I'm changing the trail cam card and I just walked back from the trail cam 
and I'm cutting up in a back, uh, another bag for the boys. And my oldest nephew goes, snake. And I'm thinking, it's probably like a rat snake. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a rat snake or it's, some, it's a king snake. You know, I'm going to, hey, let's take this time to educate them. There are good snakes in the woods. We don't want to mess with them. They're here. They got to, they're making, they're part of the ecosystem. I turn around and it is a seven foot timber rattlesnake Ooh. with so a giant. rattle like longer than my birdie finger here. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, Get on the four-wheeler. Get on the four-wheeler. So, like, I go for my, you know. And, and, again, like you said, look at what it took for that thing to strike. But it's like he was not bothered by the fact that we were there, which freaked me out. And so my instinct was, I'm going to take this thing out. So I reached for my pistol. Luckily, my pistol was in, uh, it was that pack of the truck. So I was like, oh, my God. All right, don't mess with it. My youngest nephew, hey, do you think we can grab it? And can't you like sling it in the air and throw it? I mean, my youngest nephew's awesome. Like, he was great. My oldest one went right back to the truck. He, he didn't want, he'd, he's not been in the woods since. I, got, I, I told him, I said, dude, you're not going to see Timber Rattlesnakes that often. And when you do see them, they're like you said, they're just wanting to go. They, they want to live just like the rest of us. So. Yeah. And this one I let go. I had no reason to take it out. I was just scouting an area, didn't think I'd be back. So, you know, I let him go and live his life. And I was in his territory anyway. Right. But um, yeah, I've uh, I've been struck at a few times by timbers, uh, you know. Like you said, you, you're thinking, okay, no snakes, we're good to go. Well, you jinx yourself or whatnot. Right. The snakes are there here in Georgia. They are there. Yes, they are. I was rushing to go hunting one evening. I left my job, drove all the way down to Thomaston, Georgia, had on my my business attire, <laughs> work clothes, and I thought, oh, man, I need to go look at this food plot real quick and see if there's any tra- fresh tracks in it, it. You know, to help decide oh, what yeah. to hunt in the morning. So I thought, okay, snakes. I'm like, man, nah, the food plot's only up maybe four or five inches. I'll see a rattlesnake if for sure. Out there, I hop out of my vehicle and I go, I, I trot down the trail, and I, I go from one end of the food plot to the other. It was maybe fifty yards long, and I'm like, okay, food plot looks good. And I'm walking out looking forward, and I just happened to look down, and right when I looked down, I was on the edge of the food plot. My absolute next step was on top of about a five foot timber rattler. Oh my and gosh. about the time I looked down, that joker struck, and I'm in the air jumping back. Just barely, <laughs> yeah, sure. barely missed me. I mean, I was sweating my heart. I thought it was you know, literally not a heart attack, but I, I, I was shook up. Oh, I would have had one. And, uh, and I took him out because I was going to hunt there, but I'm like, damn it, man. I said, yeah. you know, that's just it. A lot of people say, leave him alone. Well, my, my concern is if I accidentally step on one, he's probably going to kill me. Yeah. You know, so if, I, if he's in my ear, i got to take him out. Right. And, uh, but yeah, I didn't. I Kids said, and dogs. That's, that's usually my excuse. Yeah. I said, I'm not going to wear my snake boots. I'm just running over here real quick. Yeah. No. That's when it happens. I tell you, I, I'm telling you, unless it's freaking cold, cold, cold. And even in the cold, they will get up and move sometimes if yep. it's warm enough. And, uh, but one thing I've done, I think it's kind of a, a know your enemy kind of thing for me. I've really, really, really took like the last year and really tried to study as much as I can on how these, how they operate, what, what's, what snakes are venomous, what they actually look like, because I really don't want to kill a banded water snake. I really don't want to kill a rat snake. I don't want to kill a snake that, you know, I don't want to kill any snake if I don't have to, but 
if it's in my yard, you know, if it's around one of my dogs, around my kids, you know, and, and again, some, I know there's snake lovers out there. They love the, look, this, they're just call somebody to come pick it up. No, dude, by the time <laughs> I have been, I'm not going to get close enough to this thing and it's not going to live, you know, but when it comes to the, but I think the best thing is hunters, especially as much as we're in the woods, know what a copperhead looks like, know what, know what a moccasin looks like, know what a, the difference between a cane break or, or timber rattler or uh, eastern diamondback. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there's four poisonous snakes in Georgia. Yeah, there's only four here, usually. Yeah, rattlesnake, copperhead, water moccasin, and coral snake. I've been here all my eastern, life. Well, eastern, eastern rattle and then uh, Well, there's timber. different species of rattles. I'm just saying rattlesnake right, overall. Right, right. Okay, there you go. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so you lumped them in there for me. Yeah, gotcha. rattlesnakes, copperheads, water moccasin, and coral snake. Never seen a coral snake in my life. I've only in, in seen one, and it was in this county. But yeah. that's the first time I've in, ever in, seen in one. In this county? Yeah. Wow, yeah. In, in I, f- I know the southern counties, you might catch a coral snake closer to Florida. The good thing is, coral snakes are very dead. I think they're probably more one of the most deadliest snakes in this they country. Are. But they don't. They rarely ever bite because they don't have fangs. They have two teeth, like, like just protrusions. Really? And to bite a human... They're so small, they'd almost have to bite in between your finger, that piece of skin there. That's like the only place, one of the few places that's they can get That's somebody thinking mouth. it's not a... Well, and, and it's red-touched yellow killer fellow. There you how, go. There's, there's the your, easiest that's thing how you world. distinguish them because the king snake looks, there's a king snake that looks just like but, the coral snake. Right. So. Uh, was it black, uh, red on uh, red on black, friend of Jack, and then... Yeah, right, and red-touched yellow killer. So there, yeah. there you go. So there's only four snakes to learn in Georgia. Now, uh, granted, a water moccasin, certain time of year, he's he's a black-gray color, but when he's got a new set of skin on, he is blotched, looks a lot like a water snake. So that is hard to distinguish between those two. Right, yeah, I just... Uh... I usually try to just avoid them. Like with, it, like with that rattlesnake, I mean, it was a giant timber rattler, but I, I was like, look, guys, there's no point in us going. My one, both nephews wanted to kill it. One nephew was just, kill it, get it off the face of the earth. The other one was like, I want the rattle. Can I get the rattle? He, like he wanted to keep the rattle or he wanted the skin. He's like, can we get the skin? I hear they're really good if you get the, the venomous part out of them. I was like, Dude, no, just let that snake live its life. Okay, it's serving a purpose. We'll probably never see it again. Let's just let it go. You know. I know. I know. We keep jumping around off off topics here, and we keep going back to Africa. But could you tell me about your sable buck? Oh yeah, man, the sable. The sable is the bucket list of many. Yes. Um, it was. He was an animal that I did not plan to take while I was there, simply because he's out of my budget. Um. Fortunately, it worked out. Uh, my pHs were great. I'll tell you, I hunted with Bailey Sipple Hunting Safaris. Best guys in the world. They are my family now. I would do anything for them. They um, put us on the animals. They're by your side the entire time. They could grow all that. I, I can't say enough about Bailey Sipple. Anyway, we're sitting in our blind and I'm discussing things with my uh, pH. And I said, you know, if I could ever acquire some sort of discount on a sable, I may actually consider it after I take my other animals off my list. If it's, if, if it, if the math fits, I might actually do it. He's such a good man. He, he, he made a quick phone call, talked to someone quietly. We're in the blind. Well, he's sitting right beside me and he texts me a number. He's two feet from me, but he sent me a text and I looked you're, at my, you're getting an on the field quote. That's awesome. <laughs> I looked at my text and I looked at him. He said, That's, that would be your price, Gene. He said, we think a lot of you. And, you know, That's and, awesome. And I looked at the price and I said, well, 
let me let, let's see what happens over the next few days because I definitely want certain animals and we'll see. So anyway, I made it work. I've, I said I'm going to fit in my budget along with my buddy. He fit one in his budget. So uh, we're sitting in a blind, see a sable off in a distance. He did not want to come into the water. They, they're so wild. They, we burned zebra dung in the blind throughout the day to cover our scent. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold, stop. <laughs> okay, hold on. Because like, as you know, whitetail hunters, we're all scent freaks. And it's just, okay, zebra dung. That is their method. As you're walking to your, your blind or wherever you're going, dung is everywhere. And they pick up the zebra dung. It's dried up. Dry like you know, just it's just everything's dry in Africa during that time of year. By the way, when you hunt Africa anywhere from April through September, that's their primary winter. So here it is, and we went late July, early August, and this you know we're wearing a jacket in Africa because the days may get up to 60, 70, maybe eighty, but the nights can be in the high thirties. That's their winter time. Anyway, that being said, the sable and everything else there, they're so wild. They'll A lot of people are like, oh, man, you know, you sit in a blind and they walked up and drank water or ate food. Well, the, you've got to get them there. And if they smell you, they are not coming in. I've watched too many of them turn and run because the wind changed. So we're burning zebra dung in the blind, and this, this sable just knew something was up. He would not come in. So uh, he, he, he went off a little ways, and... My PH said, you know, you want to do a stalk? I said, yeah, I'd love it. Let's try to stalk up on him. So we tried that for a little while, but he winded us. And at 100 yards away, he turned, you know, got out of there. So I gave up on it for that day, for that moment. When we hunt there, we hunt hard. We sit in the blind all day. Mm. Um, If we happen to take something in the blind, we'll go out, we'll deal with it, and we'll get back in the blind. Mm. So, uh all I want, I mean, it was a really hot day that day. It was very dry. I mean, if you kicked your foot in the dirt, a puff of smoke would rise for 10 minutes. That's how dry it is there. That's why the animals are so desperate for any water they can find. Um, And I I keep jumping around. Tell you this real quick. So out of 10,000 acres on this ranch, they had only um, three or four watering holes. I'm like, or or blinds that you hunt and water holes. I'm like, man, you got 10,000 acres here. If this was deer hunting land, we'd have 75 stands over here in patterns. Yeah. And he made, he made a lot of sense. He said, Gene, why do that? He said, they're going to come to water. Make sure the only water on the property is in these four spots, and the animals are going to come. That makes sense. And that's exactly what happened. Now. Honestly, I think that that's usually the argument for a lot of, I think, whitetail hunters that do the whole, hey, if you want to make a water source, you just get the kiddie pool, do the kiddie pool deal with the flex seal, and then bam. I, but go. if there's no water source... To me, if you've got a good amount of water source on on whitetail property, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, I guess maybe. But if you don't have one, that's actually a great way, a really good way to bring them in, right? But, and the, that, West, that concept, especially. yeah, especially. But sorry, I just made us jump around. Back, <laughs> me, me back to the zebra crap. The, the, the uh, I want to hear the oh. zebra doo doo. Uh, so yeah, you you burn it. As a matter of fact, and sometimes um, yeah, we're in there. I'm like, man, I can't really breathe. But he's like, we got to burn it, Gene. And it really does help cover your scent. But uh, so it was so dry there that later that evening, we recognized the same sable. We'd been sitting in the blind maybe another, I don't know, four or five hours. Well, this time that sable was desperate. He was going to come in for water. And this, come to think, I'm glad you asked about the sable because the shot on this thing was crazy. Really close shot. I mean, 20 yards. But how I had to make the shot was insane. The blind we were in was an old water tower. It barely, two of us could fit in it and draw my bow back, but we were shoulder to shoulder. And there was only a slot, maybe, 
oh, maybe 10 inches wide by 20 inches tall that I was going to shoot through. And uh, so anyway, the, the sable starts coming in, and my, my PA said, get ready. I think he might actually be so thirsty he's going to come all the way in this time. So after about 30 minutes of watching, he eased his way in, and this, this thing was jittery. He would flinch every five seconds. He'd look at the blind. He'd stick his nose up in the air. So uh, he gets to the water, and my, my PH says, draw your bow back and shoot if you can. Well, I'm, I draw my, I'm looking. I said, I can't even, all I see is his hindquarters because where my guide was sitting, he had a better view, and he's right beside me, but I couldn't see nothing. And he said, Gene, you have to shoot. You have to make it happen. He says he's going to leave. He's going to drink a five seconds and drink. And I'm like, well, Dempsey, let me let me get around behind you here. So I drew my bow back. Then I shifted my body sideways, talking about an awkward torquing position for your bow. And I leaned over sideways, and I'm trying to watch to make sure my limb doesn't hit the top of the blind. And I'm trying to make sure that even though my sight sees what I want to shoot, that my arrow isn't going to hit the plastic of the of the water uh, tower that we were in, which is on the ground. So just as I went to shoot, he was a quarter at an angle, and my guy said, don't shoot. Well, about that time, I shot. He thought I was going to hit the big leg bone, and then for the size arrow I had, I was shooting a 465 grain. Mm. It wouldn't have done any damage. Uh, this, these animals are huge. I mean, it, the shoulder of this animal comes up to, like, my nose. These animals so you, did, you would use, like, a fatter arrow I, for Well, sure. I would go for a much heavier grain arrow. Yeah. So, um. Anyway, I made the shot, and I, I thought of I considered the bone. I considered where he was at, and I just made a perfect shot just to the left of that bone. There I went in, and went at the broadhead, it was a round cat, stuck out on the opposite side of the body. And I'm like, man, why didn't this thing go through, you know? And But that's when I learned that, Gene, they're like a block target. Nothing can hardly penetrate these animals. Really? They're unreal. So uh, he bounces off, and he, um, he, he goes maybe, I don't know, 80, 90 yards. He was running dead. Um, great shot. I was excited to oh, never thought bad. in my life I would take a sable. That's they are beautiful, massive. Their horns are just just amazing. You, you'll never do it justice until you see one out in the wild. That's fantastic. It's unreal. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, that's cool. Um, was there, is there any other animals you took when you was there that we haven't well, talked let's about? Let's see. I've, I took the warthog, the baboon, a sable, a zebra, a kudu. Oh, what else? Oh, um... Jim's bot. And that was a that was another funny one too because uh, on on the trip prior to that I wanted a Jim's bot and I wanted a pretty good one. Well, they were so wild again. They were they were winning us and they would not come in. And uh, so finally, I, two had come in. I was getting ready to draw the bow back and they turned and ran. I was like, man, we got we've got to change tactics or something. He said, no, they they you know a couple more may come before we leave. So later that evening, we'd been there for hours upon hours. He said, here comes two Jim's bot. I said, okay, great. I said, you know, I wonder if this same thing's going to happen. They're going to win this. Well, they get pretty close. They get within 40-something yards, and they're staring towards us. So the wind was getting ready to shift, and I was going to take the one on the left. And um, I drew my bow back. He said, you better hurry. They're about to bolt. And I had my bow at full draw. Well, my buddy had taken one the day before, and I said, wait a minute. He said, what? I said, which one has the longer horns? I got to take the one with the longer horns. Because <laughs> right. they were so, right. they were so, I said, I got to beat my buddies up, you know, because we just love giving each oh, other a hard time. And he said, the one on the right, I said, oh, man, I had to let my bow down and yardage, you know, take a take a range on him real quick. And he was 40-something yards, and uh, he uh, made a great shot. Arrow penetrated straight through that huge gems bucket, 44, 45, 46 yards, and 
he ran off just a little ways. Didn't have to track him. Which, you know, That's awesome. Pretty quick. Be- another beautiful animal. One of my favorite ones on the wall just because her face is so pretty. Um, consumed a portion of him that night. Like awesome. I said, don't want to waste anything. Uh, Absolutely. That's about it. We did find a black. I did ask the PH. I said, "Do you ever run across black mamas here? Because a lot of black mamas." You know, I, that, honestly, the, the back of my mind is we just got through talking about snakes and Africa, the, Africa, the black mamba, <laughs> most deadliest snake in the well, world. That's I think. a snake I fear. Um, yeah, I would be scared to death of that thing. Here's here's my fear of a black mamba. They're the only snake, from my understanding, in the world that will raise up six feet and bite you in the face. Yeah. So I fear those snakes because, you know, they bite you in. As a matter of fact, oh, not a good snake story. I'm glad this is an African snake Absolutely. story. Absolutely. So um, we never saw a black mamba, but we were easing along, and there was a bush with a huge shed on it. it turns out it was a black mamba shed. I mean, it's enough to strike fear in you. And I asked the ranch, one of the ranch um, workers there, I said, you ever seen any black mamas? He said, yes, Gene, we see them all through the summer crossing the rows and mm. You know, fortunately, it's winter. They're not as active. but So we never saw one. But on one of my trips there, we were in a blind. Well, it, it was getting dark. And one thing they don't do in Africa, they don't do like we do here. We don't, They don't go out before daylight and go to the blind or start hunting. They wait till daylight. Really? Because you, you, there's things out there that will eat you. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and then we don't wait until pitch dark to come out of the stand. Like here, you know, if I if I hear a deer coming and it's dark, you know, I'm like, all right, yeah, no, I'm not gonna if shoot. If I've got, if I if I can look down my peep sight or in my scope and it's still, I can, I've got, I can tell exactly what it is and I can see exactly where I'm shooting. I'm not gonna get down until I can't. <laughs> right, and even when I can't shoot, if they're around me, around you know, if it's a white-tailed deer, I don't want to spook them, so I'll sit up and stand another forty-five minutes. Yeah, just yeah. waiting for them just to for leave. Just for them to get out of there. Yeah, right. exactly. So anyway, we were coming out of this blind, and uh, one of the workers was there, and there was a huge uh, termite mound. When I say huge, these things are 10, 12 feet tall. Yeah, I heard they're crazy over there. Yeah, and they're you know they have sticks sticking out of them and all that. Well, they have a lot of holes in them, um, holes the size of your fist, and they may go back. 10, 12 inches, they may go out four feet. Well, as, as we're standing there, the worker said something, and my PA said, what? And the worker said, puff adder. Okay, what's the one of the most dangerous snakes in the world? It's the puff adder, you know, next to your black mamba. Um, I said, puff adder, where? And he just pointed. He wouldn't get near it. And I looked in there, and I said, oh, man, that is cool. I've seen a wild puff adder in Africa. How cool is that? Well, um, about that time, I, I told my guide, I said, I want to touch it. And he goes, no, Gene. No, he said, no, you Gene, do not. No, Gene, no. And I said, I said, look, I said, I'm, I'm going to be very careful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull him out with a stick because they're they're kind of. Um, <laughs> Doing pulling some Georgia junk and daggum Africa. <laughs> they're kind of a lethargic snake, but they're a very fast striker. Right. And they're, and they're not long snakes. So um, I, I got a, a limb and I pulled him out and I, I get him in front of us. And he just kind of lays there in a, a very lethargic, lackadaisy manner. He he wasn't in a you know hurry to strike at us or anything. Well, so I I, I take the limb and I, I kind of lay it on his head. And my guide said, "Gene, we are two and a half, three hours from anywhere." He said, "If this snake bites you, there's no way you're going to get out of here." I said, "I'm not going to." I said, "I'm going <laughs> to be very careful. I will not let the snake bite." Well, about that time, the other PH was driving up with my buddy. And my buddy knows me very, very well. And I heard him say, Gene's found something to mess with. <laughs> and that that particular PH said, what is it? And so the one with me, he said, it's a puff adder. He said, back away, back away. And I said, "Wow." I said, no, nah, I'm okay. I'm careful. Go, Do <laughs> they, not touch. They were, they were not having it that day with you. <laughs> no, they, 
I'm touching this puff out <laughs> This puff out is going to be touched. <laughs> so uh, I laid a stick on his head. I made sure he wasn't coming out of it. And I just reached out and I pet that snake on the back. <laughs> And you know, and I'm I'm in a position where this is the second, well, like the second or th- <laughs> third deadliest snake in the world. He's wanting to pet it. Uh, I'm in a position where if God anything forbid happened, you found I a black mamba backwards. gene. That's one I wouldn't have done it. To. <laughs> yeah. So I pet, I pet him and I took the stick and I pushed him back in the termite mound and I said, "How?" And that's on video, by the way. Oh gosh. And I said, "How many people in the world can say they went to Africa, found a puff adder, petted it, and let it go?" Steve Irwin. <laughs> Steve Irwin, you can end up like Steve Irwin. You know, out of this. You know, you, you're saying that about Steve. Let me say this real quick. I watched Steve Irwin for maybe a year and a half, two years prior to his death, and I was angry at him because I didn't like how he portrayed these deadly animals, bees, critters, snakes, to be such loving. You know, he would, he would, yeah, they're dangerous, but you know, they're really here to be loved. And I'm like, this guy is one day going to get killed by the most docile animal on the earth. Sure and enough. look what happened. Oh, wow. I mean, it was his... He, it was, people may get upset with me, and I don't, I don't mean anything bad, but I felt like he was begging for it for the way he was portraying these animals to be. Yeah, you know, I mean, well, you know, in Australia, they're just, Australians are nothing but just deeper southern southerners <laughs> i swear like they're i love I, I like australian people don't get me wrong like I, I but i really feel like they are like some straight up they're just rednecks that's they're just as redneck uh, I mean, as we are well not even that you got the guy the people that think bears are like teddy bears and cuddly so you had the oh one yeah guy no, i think I, no i think that's a whole misconception when i was like it's just like my teddy no dog no dude. any no. these are wild animals so Absolutely. You, so you got the guy that went to live with the grizzlies i forget his name oh, and yeah. He was talking about how how you know loving they are and they they're not out to get you. Well, what happens? Him and his girlfriend turns into lunch for yeah, one of the grizzlies. Exactly. You do not you do not tempt these animals like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people really should watch themselves, especially the wild animals. Them also, this is coming from the guy that just petted the third deadliest snake in the world or whatever. It was. <laughs> Again, very careful. I'm not going to go up to a grizzly and say don't bite me. With a grizzly. <laughs> Oh no, nah, I just you know, and again, a black mamba, I would never ever right. do that with. But I didn't You're see drawing any the line there. <laughs> Puff adder's a short, fat snake. Yeah, really? and that's what I'm saying. I just held his head down. He couldn't do anything. I, I was being very careful. But <laughs> black mamba, I was hoping I wouldn't see one out there, and I was yeah, glad I didn't. Good. They are oh. a snake to raise, and I've seen them on TV raise up five feet tall and strike. You know, the Atlanta Zoo, they have one in captivity up there, and it, and it is yeah, it's freaky just because it sits up and it just sits there and does the whole. I'm like. Uh-uh, dude. I tell everybody, I say, if you ever want to see what a demon looks like, look in the eyes of a cobra, a rattlesnake, a black mama. Yeah, it's black scary, mama, I'm telling you, dude. Scary looking thing. The, the black mama looks like that. That was the original snake that made Eve bite the apple, in my opinion. <laughs> like, it's so <laughs> freaky looking. But, you know, get, getting back to the archery world, you know, I know a lot of hunters that they say, hey, man, it's, it's three weeks till deer season. I better get my bow out. Yeah, you know, I, I highly would recommend that you get your bow out prior to that. Not to say that you can't hit a pie plate at 20 yards, but too many variables are involved. Too many things can happen. For me, I don't shoot every day because I got to be ready for deer season. That's part of it. I do it because of the passion, and it is um, it, it relaxes me. I mean, it's it's my therapy. I get I, pu- I push away from my crazy IT computer during the day where I sit in meetings six, seven, eight hours and. Uh, listen to the mumbo jumbo IT stuff, and then I turn my hat around in the evening, and I pick my bow up, and I just love slinging arrows. I don't, you know, I love it when the group gets tighter, 
But it's, it's true therapy. That's, that's why I love my archery so much. You know, the first archery lesson I think I learned, and I learned it from Dennis, Dennis Lewis, it was don't wait two weeks before archery season to go throw <laughs> your target out there and start slinging arrows. You should be slinging arrows in the spring. It goes back to proper form. There you go. In order to have proper form, close to perfect as you can get with your bow, you want to shoot very often. Because you want well, to hold that bow the same every time. If you take a three-month break, you're not going to pick it up and hold it the same exactly. way you Exactly. And, uh, and top of that, the, the, the title, I guess I'll tell that is muscle memory. Mm-hmm. You lose your muscle memory when you don't use a particular muscle for a certain amount of time. Unfortunately, drawing a bow back, that is one particular muscle that we never use Unless we're drawing a bow back in our shoulder. Really? Yeah, there's a... And that, that, here's here's how I can um, give you an example or prove that. I, I can walk up to a guy that's muscle man, probably bench 300 pounds, and say, hey, pull this 80-pound bow back, and he can't. Right. There's a certain muscle that's not always worked out, that's not exercised or utilized as often as all the rest of the muscles in your body. So muscle memory means a lot. Um, I, I was talking to some guy one day, and he, you know, he debated that with me. He said, I can... Put my bow down and pick it up next year and still hit with it. I'm like, you uh, may be able yeah, to do that, you are but you're 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 gonna do yourself a favor if you pick it up prior to or you practice prior to. Yes, I'll hit that pie plate at 20 yards if I put my bow up today and not pick it up till next year. But I don't want to hit that pie plate. I want to put a dime on that pie plate and hit that dime at 40 yards. Then I'm confident. Yes, same here. You know, I like an archery to golf a lot. I mean, if you ever play golf, you know, if anything you change small, tiny, minute things. You could do everything you think you're doing right. I mean, that's the same way you've always done it. Something can change, and it will throw your game all the way off. I mean, for myself, I mean, Kelby actually is going to have to, like, get me rearranged before we before the season starts because I I feel like I did exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. I I put the bow up. Not because I wanted to do that, because I really did want to get out and shoot, but I, I just didn't have time. Every excuse in the world, and it's not a good one. But at the same time, I mean, it's kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to pull my bow out. I think I pulled it out in what, maybe May or something like that in the spring, like like I was told. And everything was off. Everything, I mean, from my anchor point was messed up. You know, and still, I, it's still not 100% correct. Like at this point, so like I told Kelby, like, I need you and me at some point when we get, we're not doing podcasts, I need to sit down with you. I'm going to, I'm even going to put a kisser button on. And, and now, I mean, you guys both been in archery for a long time. I feel like there's this little stigma around the kisser button, like, oh, that's for the, the, the first years. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't and say... I don't, I don't think that's I wouldn't true. Say I so. don't think badly about anybody using a kisser no, button. No, I, I took my kisser button off maybe seven or eight years ago. Used one all my life. I, I've competed in um, prof- you know, professional world archery tournament, right. ETA, IBO. I always use a kisser button. But I took it off primarily because today I don't shoot a peep. I shoot my 100-yard targets. I, I never use a peep. Right. Um, but here's why. I've got what's called a no-peep device that shows any torque, anything different I do on that bow when I when I come to full draw, my peripheral vision will see the dot of this. It's called the no peep sight. I'm not aiming with that. I just glance at it. And if that dot is not in a, a, a hollow circle, that black dot might be a little to the left or a little to the right. right. Well, I know I'm not at full draw or I'm torquing or something. So I was able to take my kisser button off 
because that no peak device tells me if I'm not at the same position every time. If it wasn't for that, I'd put a kisser button back on my boat. Right. Kisser button is just, everybody says, well, why use a kisser button? You're at full draw. You're looking through your peep. Well, anything you can do to give yourself an advantage to do the same thing every time. Right. Do it. String touching the nose, looking through the center of peep, kisser button touching the corner of your lip. Anything you can give your, any way you can give yourself an advantage, that will help you close your groups up. <laughs> The anchor point for me has changed entirely too much. Like I started, you know, you know, probably I think a lot of people do index finger into the jawbone, but then I started behind the ear. Then I switched it to the behind the ear. Then I switched it under the jaw. Then I'm like, you know, I'm all over the place. There's no point. I, I've got to settle. So I've settled recently, you know, back on my jawbone. But then you know, my <laughs> peep would be off, and I have to. I've got some other crap going on, like me and Kelby are well, going to have to spend some time in the shop or something. <laughs> you, you need to come over here with your bow. We need to shoot targets. We're, we're going to do that. This, I, this time of off. year with deer season right around the corner, everybody needs to shoot their bow twice a week. If it's not but 15 minutes a day, shoot your I, bow. Um, That's what I do, 15 minutes a day. This past December, I had a surgery. It's called Nissen Funduplication. It's an acid reflux surgery. Anyway, due to that surgery, I was told not to do anything strenuous for like three weeks. Right. So there went my bow for three weeks. Oh, man. So to give you an idea, when I when I started shooting again, I mean, I was like, all right, three weeks is up. I can shoot today without tearing everything apart that they'd fixed in my in my in my uh, torso. So um, I go out and I shoot a group, and I know the bow was good because I keep my bows tuned. I knew there was nothing wrong with the bow. Well, I'm shooting left, and I'm like, all right, uh, I'm wondering if I'm wondering if I banged my sight or something. Well, I keep shooting that day, and I'm, I'm grouping to the left. Every now and then, I'll have a flyer a little to the right or go in the bullseye, but most things are to the left. So what are most people going to do? Okay, let me adjust my sight. Let me yeah. adjust my rest. I knew that my muscle memory was was lazy because for three weeks, it, you know, I haven't pulled a bow back. So I said, well, I'm going to shoot for a couple more days and see if this this kind of resolves itself. And sure enough, after about the third day, because it's, it's frustrating for me to shoot a group and arrows go to the left or right. It tears me up because... If I know the bow is right, then I'm mad at myself. Right. I know I'm not doing what I supposed what I'm supposed to be doing. So like the third day, I didn't make any adjustments on the bow, and I'm drilling the bullseye. Um, there will be days where I'll go outside and I'll, I'll hey, let me shoot you know 60 yards a day, and I'll shoot three or four arrows, and the group might be the size of a softball, and I'm like, no way, that's not acceptable. And so I'll you know do that crazy thing. I'll talk to myself. Yeah. Gene, you know what you're supposed to do. Draw your bow back. Come to full draw. Get on the wall and don't relax too much. Stay on the wall. Look. Make sure that that pin is touching the dot. Don't touch the trigger until that pin is touching the dot. Because a lot of times when I draw back, it's it's not really so much target panic, but my pin will start sinking low in the dot, and I got to pull it back up. And a lot of times, if people are honest with themselves. They might hit four inches low, but if they paid attention, they could see that dot, was, their pin was dropping at the shot. So once I have that little conversation with myself and I say, you know, stay on the wall, you know, as soon as I touch the trigger, don't grab the bow, let it tilt forward, do I? All at once my groups close up. It is, archery is such a mental game. Yeah. It's, it's like 10% physical, 90% mental, and I cannot tell you how true that is. Absolutely. Well, I hate to say it. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to end them, especially when we're having good conversations. I know. It's always like, uh, but you know, I mean, we could have you back anytime. I'm hoping. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't mind getting to. you and Ted both on here. 
Yeah, we've got some hunting stories that will. Yeah, I think just the hunting stories alone, from what you've told us, just between what you and Ted have done, it sounds like you guys have had. Every time I go see Ted, he'll say, you know, we could write a book on the things we did hunting. (laughs) Maybe we can get you and Ted on here and we can do do some hog hunting. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be great. That'd be great. We'll film it. That'd be great. Well, dude, Gene, so what what can our listeners do? because we know, Kelly and I know how great, you know, you're just, you're killer at this. So how can, how can they find like maybe some Gene Hobbs tips or something like that? Do you have you a know, website? I, I would tell everybody, I mean, I've got my website for my bow fishing and um, I don't Facebook. really do a lot of coaching on there or anything like that. It's called mm-hmm. bowfishingmadness.com. But I do, uh, if I've went on a guided hunt, good or bad, I try to warn these guys, good or bad, and I'm, I'm going to write an article on you. You know, I may say, dude, you were the best thing in the world, or I may say, you may want to reconsider. Right. But so, you know, I've got some things like that on there uh, outside of bow fishing. If you're if you're looking into bow fishing, building a fan boat, I've got some extreme detail on how we built the boat I have. Awesome. But other than that, my Facebook, if you just look at Gene Hobbs, and, or if you just go to the Bow Hunters group, the Accession Brotherhood group, I put a lot of stuff out there, a lot of coaching type tidbits, um, a lot of ways I tune my bow, how I built my drawboard. I've got tons of information. You did you did a D loop for on the OBB uh, uh, page. I want to say recently, didn't you? Or did I dream that? Oh, oh yeah. I just put out there the other night about how I tie my D loops in. Yes. Not how I tie them, but how I set them up. Gotcha. Um, like for example, last night I put out there that um, I was tuning one of my bows after putting new strings on it, and just real quick without writing a book, I say, "Here's what I did, and here's the results I got." Awesome, and you know, so there's there's a there's some good stuff out. There. So even if you guys don't shoot obsession, join the OBB Brotherhood page. We're not <laughs> necessarily going to try to convert you, but guys, Gene is a great. He's just killer with these bows. Just sell he's your so bow good. and buy an obsession. There you go. That's all you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, and I tell everybody talking about that, just so everybody knows, like, oh, some people they're just with them because they give them this equipment. Well, that is not my case. I've had opportunities to shoot for other bow companies that I've said no to. I've shot for other bow companies in the past for quite a few. I have stuck with Obsession because of that draw cycle, because the tunability, and because that bow does not sacrifice speed to have such a smooth draw cycle. There are bows out there that I might be able to get them to go eight feet per second faster, but that draw cycle is horrible. And after five shots, I'm like, I don't even want to shoot no more today. Uh, I'll, uh, not knocking Bowtech, their bows are great. They this, they replaced this bow, but I shot Bowtech years ago, and I literally dreaded coming home and shooting 24 arrows because I knew when I drew that bow back, I'm getting towards the hump, and I knew at that hump I was going to squint mm-hmm. and just about dislocate my shoulder just to get over their hump, and that takes the fun out of archery. You find a bow with a smooth draw cycle, which which there's a lot of bows like that, yeah. but they're they're on the slower side. Mm-hmm. Bows have come a long way. There's some today that they're not quite so slow. They still have a smooth draw cycle. But Obsession Bow, my, I'll keep shooting them as long as you guys keep that draw cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and don't sacrifice that speed. That's then right. I, then I'm a happy camper. That's awesome. Well, awesome. So, yeah, you guys, you can contact Gene on Facebook uh, through the several uh, Facebook groups that we mentioned. But, uh, Gene, brother, thank you so much for coming, dude. I, he, Guys, Gene is a killer dude. He drove all – he drove – about three and a half, four hours down here to do our interviews. So we're super thankful for it. It was a good time. I enjoyed it. Gene's a good dude. We always enjoyed Gene coming down and hunting with us and we have a good time together. That's right. So dude, thank you for being on our podcast, brother. And, uh, well, looking forward to other people hearing everything. So I appreciate you guys inviting me and I had a blast. Thanks brother.